Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday, October 13. Right? Remember the music? There you go. That's it. That's it. Well, let me, 26-year-old Josh doesn't know anything about it. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, 26-year-old Josh. <laughs> That's right. Good morning, Roy. birthday this week and Good morning, didn't Ray. tell us. Good morning. How about your braids? Okay. <laughs> how, how about, how about your, braids? your braids? Well, I mean, I'm just asking a question. Yeah, I mean, they lost. How, They're how out. about your braids? The, 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 the most winning team in baseball is now eliminated from the playoffs. So we're done. The three teams that had over 100 wins are one and nine in 10 playoff games. Right. Wow. Right. Mm. So the teams that had an average, what, 62 or 3% winning percentage in the regular season had a 10%. Had a 10%. Um, you pointed to something? No, no. I just, okay. I was, my watch was. Covered up that big gold watch. No. Okay. My yeah. bad. My right. Bad. Right. My bad. 843 <laughs> 6610937 Let's not stay there. I mean, let's not stay. I told Please. you yesterday, kind of my plan. Um, nobody in MLB cares about my plan. But, but <laughs> I'm more on board with your plan today. Uh, I did watch the game, and I'll put it this way. Okay, just since you, you brought stayed it up, up and watched the entire I, game. I watched the whole thing. Of course, that's that's my team, man. I've been with them all season, and I, and I just try to go. Obviously, it'd have been nice to go on to you know the next playoff round and the next and into the world series of course the, that's what you who, always who would want. you play next i mean who beat diamondbacks the, okay the diamondbacks yeah. they beat the dodgers they swept the, the dodgers okay uh and go diamondbacks by the way but that's just me uh so i look at it with a with an open attitude i mean i'm i i, I mean yes it hurts i wanted to go on but i also we had a great season i mean it was a lot of fun to be a braves fan this year broke a lot of records broke team records broke individual records they played some great baseball and and uh, and they lost in in the what the first round so yeah. that's the way that's the way baseball goes I guess might be the first team to win 104 games make such a swift exit from the playoffs yeah um you, you got to do something about the format and I'm not whining because the Braves lost Rev and I agreed you kind of saw this coming I mean you really and truly did the Phillies played good baseball at the end of the season they dominated that little short series they played in uh, they were just they were in stride. And the Braves just could never get themselves uh, back geared up. I want to watch. I want to read somebody. And I would imagine over the weekend, some of these baseball experts will do a postmortem on the Dodgers, Orioles, and Braves. Are there similarities? Are there traits or characteristics about each of those series that lead MLB? Uh, I think David yesterday said it appropriately. Um, they're going to play when television says play. Uh, but the format will be dictated by television. Um, there's a big... Uh, there, there's a big debate about Clemson making an announcement. You know, are they exiting the ACC? Are they joining the Big Ten? Are they joining the SEC? Um, what will the Big Ten and SEC be like? And what will Clemson do? It, it's not Clemson's not making that decision in a, in a vacuum. The Big Ten's not making that decision in a vacuum. Um, the SEC won't make that decision in a vacuum. They're making it in concert with television networks. I mean, that's what athletics has been reduced down to. It's not athletics any longer. At that level, it's entertainment. I mean, the Braves are an entertainment entity. And television is the best way to, um, you know, with the most, uh, with, with maximum force, broadcast. We're in the broadcast business. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that product. So it's not about, you know, whether whether Snicker sits down with the MLB commissioner and says, hey, I got a, I got a kind of an analytic dissertation here that shows that uh, we, along with the Orioles and Dodgers, were disadvantaged by taking five days off. The, the MLB commissioner will probably say, yeah, but look at what Fox and ESPN and 
CBS and ABC or whomever, you know, FS1, whoever's paying X number of dollars to broadcast baseball games. Um, and you know, the, the, the doors back there, there's some, um, there's some water and Celsius in that cooler uh, around the corner. You know, who may have a little more weight though, with like the MLB commissioners is the Dodgers. I mean, because that's a major media market. It could move the okay, meter as far as viewership. Why did you just say it? The Dodgers are what? A they're, major they're, media yeah, market. Exactly. Well, I mean, to your point, that, 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 that's where I'm yeah. headed. I mean, yeah, I mean, but, but, but they might have a little more weight in that argument. Say, look, you, you, you lost Dodgers out of the series. Your, your audience potentially shrank so your tv deal might not be as good because of your playoff setup but but i would imagine mlb's response would be okay dodgers you want to do some um some um revenue sharing i mean is that where yeah. we're headed i mean do you want parity do you, do you want a fair way to choose a champion or do you want the most lucrative <laughs> way to choose the champion it's a little bit like what we talked about all week i mean eventually hamas and and israel come down to, to you know where the money is uh, iran i mean we talked yesterday a good bit extensively about the iranians funding the majority of terrorism in the uh, in the middle, not all of it, but the majority of it is funded by by Iran. So it's always about the money. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley are at one another now uh, because of one making certain accusations against the other, centering on what? Centering on money. Um, so the SEC, the Big Ten, uh, Major League Baseball, that they've just kind of made a deal with the devil. We're not athletics any longer. I think one of the, I mean, I said it one day, and I don't remember how it came up, but you can't pay Aaron Rodgers $20 million a year to throw a football. You can't. I mean, there is no rule of thumb that says any human being is worth $20 million because he can so accurately and with such velocity throw a football. But if he's an entertainer, and if the audience are getting larger and the advertisers are paying more, all of a sudden, there's a sliding scale that says, hey, this cat may be worth $20 million a year. How can a guy be worth $20 million a year throwing a football or throwing a baseball or shooting a basketball? How many eyeballs? What is the subscriber unit ratio? And how many eyeballs did we attract? And that's why the Nielsen ratings, that's why the, um, I mean, that's why, you know, MLB has a formula. They go by NFL. Um, why didn't Major League Baseball play on Sunday during the day? You know as well as I do why. Don't want to butt heads with the NFL. Why don't they want to butt heads with the NFL? Because more people watch the NFL. <laughs> you know, they pay attention lose, uh, yeah. to the yeah, Sure they do. And it's all about subscriber units, revenue, and eyeballs is really what it boils down to. And, you know, can, can MLB create a playoff that doesn't disenfranchise the entertainment component? I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea. But, but I think in the name, I think the, the game is suspect if people believe that a certain system is unfair. And I think, you know, just me personally, it's not because I'm a Braves fan. Um, the Dodgers and Orioles were, there's just a lot of evidence, Rev, this year and last that shows this five-day playoff reward. I mean, that would be reward for a football team, but football's a week-by-week game. Baseball's a day-by-day game. And you get in a groove. You play baseball Tuesday. You play baseball. Oh, here you go. You play baseball Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Sometimes you travel on Thursday. You play baseball Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Sometimes you travel on Monday. You play baseball Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I mean, you, you, you know, you, you play about every day. And when you're not playing, you're traveling somewhere. Uh, very seldom do you have a day off at a homestand. I mean, you do occasionally. But, but I mean, it's not unusual for the Braves to play you know, six, seven games in a row in consecutive days. And um, and I, I just think when you take five days 
and say, okay, remember what you did all spring and summer? We played baseball every day. Forget it. We're not doing that for five days. I think there's a kind of a, you ready for Hillary Clinton word? There's a little bit of a deprogramming hmm. that happens. And, um, and, and it, it, it's a very routine-ish sort of sport. Um, the thing that makes me believe I'm right is the Braves hit the ball better than any baseball. I mean, they hit more home runs or tied the for the all-time uh, uh, most home runs hit by a baseball team, and they just couldn't hit it. I mean, they just couldn't. I mean, one of the great offenses in recent baseball couldn't fall out of a boat and hit water. And I just think that's timing, and that's routine, and that's repetition. And they struggled getting back in the groove. And, and I don't know about the Dodgers and Orioles. I didn't watch any of their – I didn't watch any of the Braves play. But I looked at some of the box scores, and I'm like, wow, the team that hit it like crazy just flat out didn't hit, you know, except for a I – mean, they're one swing away from getting swept. True. I mean, they pulled one out of the old, you know, whatever. Uh, in game, game they, were, three. they were one swing away from almost winning the game last night, too. Did they? Yeah, there there was a, a bases loaded, Acuna up, and uh, and it was hit right to the wall but caught. And that was and they were, they were behind by two at the time. I got you. Yeah. They scored one run. They scored right. one. Yeah, yeah they, they just I mean, the offense just does not show up. Didn't show up in this um in this series. So so let's get back to the issue at hand. Josh, got a question for you. you you've been the the the, the resident uh, case study, I guess. So what is the difference in your opinion, Josh, in anti-Israel and anti-Semitism? Is there a difference? And if so, what is that difference? Yeah, of course. Okay. I mean, I I think it's ridiculous to say that just because you're anti-Israel um, means you hate the Jewish people okay. as a people. So, what does anti-Israel mean? That can mean a lot of things. Okay. So, like, I wouldn't even say I'm anti-Israel. I know, like, we've been talking about the Israel-Palestine issue, the you know, the last couple of days, and I've kind of taken a neutral stance as opposed to a pro-Palestine or a pro-Israel stance. So I wouldn't say I'm even anti-Israel, but I would say that, like, to criticize Israel could be considered anti-Israel. And that's certainly what it seems to me, especially after— Critical in what way? I mean, criticizing Israel in the the lucrative and advantageous relationship they have with the American military? Sure. I mean, Is that fair game? Yeah, I mean— Anti, like I just said, anti-Israel can mean a lot of things. I could say Israel is a great ally of ours in the Middle East, but I don't think that this ground invasion they're planning is a good idea. But, but that could be interpreted as anti-Israel. Okay, but you're anti-Hamas. Yes. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I think we've all—that's what I want to do today. I mean, we all agree, and I know the phone's ringing there. I mean, Rev's nodding his head. Mm, oh, you know, I mean, I, we, there was a lot of debate yesterday in mainstream media, Twitter, and some other places. Uh, Bill O'Reilly and Geraldo Rivera had an interesting back and forth. Got a little bit testy, but they've been around one another for a long, long time. I, I would imagine there have been periods of their life they tolerated one another. There have been other periods of their life they didn't much tolerate uh, one another. The one commonality they have is they both have a real strong opinion of their own opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and O'Reilly and and and, uh, and Geraldo went at it, and they kind of I mean they kind of agreed with what Josh said. Anti-Israel and anti-Semitism are not one of the same, but they both established Hamas must be rooted out. I mean, it's evil. I mean, it's, it, 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 you know, you wonder, and, and, I, and I'll say this, you wonder, you, you, you can't wrap your head around how someone 
could put another human being in a furnace. I mean, it's hard for to wrap your head around. Wow. I mean, you know, when, when I see orange in October and November, I get real bothered. I see that tiger paw. I mean, I'm a Gamecock, and it's about time for the rivalry. You know what I mean? It's early November, and that irks me more than normal. It doesn't bother me much in January unless they beat us, you know, seven in a row. Um, but, but it does bother me. And, but but it, it doesn't cross my mind to do anything. You know what I mean? It's just like, damn Clemson. I mean, I'm tired of seeing that orange crap. You know what I mean? And But, but I mean, well, you, well, you really – you struggle with trying to understand and grapple and grasp how can one human being who has authority, I mean, they've got guns and an army and the other is helpless. They don't have any guns. They don't have any army. They're, they're in bondage. And you're going to tell that human being to go in that oven. And if they don't, you put them in there anyway. Well, I, I, that's just, I mean, that's something I can't comprehend until I see a bullet riddled baby. And, I mean, yesterday we saw visuals. I mean, I, you know, I saw that with my own eyes. Uh, the State Department said there were more horrific pictures that they wouldn't allow the public to review. But I saw an infant child riddled with bullets. I mean, I saw an infant child mutilated. I watched a video, one of the most graphic videos I've ever watched, of a, an 85-year-old Jewish woman set on fire in her bed. I mean, it's, it's and, and, you know, mm. Hamas laughing and celebrating in regards to that. So, so human depravity is real. I mean, evil is real. It's as real as I'm sitting behind this microphone. So if we debate, if we debate anti-Semitism, anti-Israel, what America should or should not do, cutting off the head of the snake, being Iran, I think we can all agree that Hamas, if the world is going to be a better place, Hamas has to be eradicated. Hezbollah has to be eradicated. Fanatical Islamic terrorism has to be eradicated aggressively pursued by any extreme measure necessary. Let's take our first break. I want to come back. I know I got a call. We'll get to that on the other side. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. We'll be back in just a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. First caller of the morning. Let's go there. Bill and McCall. Good morning, Bill. How you doing, Dave? Ken. You know, I hear everybody talking about uh, Israel and Palestine. If you believe in the Bible, God says he's going to put a hook in their mouth and drag them down there. And there'll be two million people killed, and the Macaw Valley blood will be bridled deep to a horse. Now, who's going to stop all that? Ain't no human going to stop all that because God says it's got to happen. So now, y'all talk all y'all want to, but you better read your Bible and listen to what the Bible says, no matter what man says. Ain't nobody going to stop it, because God says it's going to happen. Thank you. 843-661-0937. One of the interesting realities that I don't think we're talking very much about, um, I mean, to, to, to me, and, and I mean, you know, like I said, guys, I've invested as much in this as, as I the Fed was probably number one. I mean, when I started down the road of trying to better understand something, um, I remember getting knee deep in the Fed, and and I and I began to understand it. And then I got waist deep, and I got lost again. And then I got about shoulder deep, and I'm like, what is it? I mean, it's some amoeba. It's not even. I mean, it does what it wants to do. It's some leviathan like creature that does. You know, makes the rules and breaks the rules and makes the rules again. Um, and 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 I feel similarly. To, to my trying to understand the Fed at trying to understand 
you know, this particular Palestinian. I've known all my life. All three of us have heard the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. I mean, it's, it's, it's about land. It's about religion. It's about, you know, occupation and apartheid. It's about, you know, God of Abraham. It's about the Ottoman Empire. It's about the British Mandate. I would argue the majority of you didn't know the British Mandate was, um, you know, kind of one of the legal documents. But the British colonization, what was a part of this. So it's, it's, it's entailed. It's, it's, it's centuries old. Um, it does go back to the beginning of time. I mean, it really and truly does. When you start thinking about the, the God of Abraham and King David, you know, placing Jerusalem under Jewish authority in somewhere around 1000 BC, you weren't there. I wasn't there, but, but I, you know, I take the Bible at its word. Um, what we talked about inherent scripture, you know, that the inherent nature of, of scripture, um, one of the secular realities that, that put religion aside for a second, the the two most recent administrations, and I'm talking about the Obama and Trump administrations, have tried to pivot away from the Middle East. I mean, I, I think the, the the sentiment of the public and the American, um, you know, in the American way, have suggested to Democrats and Republicans that was c- kind of a black hole. I mean, that that was a place that. We invested unbelievable amounts of money, unbelievable human amount, uh, amounts of human treasure, and nothing's really any different. So whether they came out with some diplomatic foreign policy position of pivoting away from the Middle East, they did it based on political expediency. I mean, the American public had gone very tired and weary of our ongoing and never-ending or apparent never-ending presence in the Middle East. Well, I mean, what we did... Uh, this week we are moving. What um, what we're moving um, some of our arsenal. You know we're. I think the Mediterranean Sea has six more ships with American flags than it had a week or so ago. It might be four. I think it's four now have made their way to the Mediterranean. Two are on their way there. But I mean, that's not the pivot. We're not talking much about that. I mean we really aren't. Um, one of the questions we posed yesterday is, um, you know, what if Netanyahu, and I think that really has, I think there's got to be a serious debate about the Netanyahu doctrine, so to speak, his strategy for dealing with Palestine, the Gaza Strip and Hamas and the West Bank and Hezbollah. I mean, I think you've really got, if you're an Israeli, you've got to say, wow, I mean, th- this guy's a hardliner and he talks a big tough game, but, you know, I mean, there was a lot of Israeli deaths while he was in charge. And um, I mean, I understand he's got to consolidate. He's got to collaborate. He's got to, I mean, it's not a Republican Democrat form of government. There's some parliamentary, uh, there's kind of a parliamentary nature to the Israeli government and the, the Lukid party that, that Netanyahu presides over had to reach out to an even further right um, party. So, so, you know, has the, I mean, it, for lack of a better word, has the net new, the, the Benjamin Netanyahu doctrine, failed the Israeli people? Uh, I think that's a fair question. I don't know if you saw this yesterday or not, some of the video of how the uh, how Hamas infiltrated some of these villages. Uh, but they just, you know, somebody would come up. That some of these neighborhoods are secured with gates. And somebody, a, a person who lived in the neighborhood, would pull up to the gate, kind of scan a card. And, um, and the second the gate opened, the second somebody would jump from behind a building or a tree or a bush or whatever and just shoot dead the... Um, the person who lived there, 
And then, you know, 8, 10, 12, 20, 25, 30, 40, 50 terrorists would, would go through the village. Uh, the neighborhood, what you and I would call it, a gated community, is what you and I would, you know, uh, probably call it in the Western world, in America. Um, so they would basically have access to this gated community, and they would just go through the community killing people, babies, children, women, uh, didn't matter. And um, and I heard an interesting interview yesterday with um, – with a Western journalist, very sympathetic to the Palestinians, basically taking a, a Jewish authority to task about their lack of consideration for innocent Palestinians. And, and I'll ask this. This would be a very interesting question. So if, if, if someone shoots Dave Baker's kid, Ken's kid, Josh's dad, I mean, somebody you care and love, more than words can explain or describe. Um, that'd be uh, Josh's dad, Rev's kid, my kid. Um, and they're standing uh, 50 yards away, but they've got an innocent Palestinian in front of them as a human shield. What do you do? I mean, what do you do? I mean, I'm willing to say it. I pull a bullet through both. Mm-hmm. I mean, I pull a bullet through both. I'm sorry. I mean, I, that's an innocent person that didn't deserve to die, and they're dead because I decided to pull the trigger. But all I see, I'm sorry, all I see is that member of Hamas standing behind that innocent Palestinian that killed my kid. And he's going to die by any means necessary. And if he holds a human shield, to me, he's killed that Palestinian, not me. He's guilty and responsible for, and I don't know how God keeps score there. I mean, I don't have any idea. The evils and, and you know, the, uh, the, the, the tribulations of life in reality and in real time, I don't have any idea how to score that. I mean, when you get to the pearly gates and Peter says, I, I, Peter, I don't know, man. I mean, I, I knew that Palestinian was innocent, but all I saw was that guy behind that innocent Palestinian, and they were responsible for killing my kid, and that's all I know. And, yeah, I took a, you know, a, a high-caliber gun and blew a hole in both of them. I mean, do you agree with that, Josh? You know, I got to say, I'm honestly, I'm very impressed by you once again. You, you've, because uh, cause that's, Kind of how I feel, too. Although I can admit, you know, like there's a way that I feel and there's a way I can say I probably would act versus what I know is right and wrong. So, if, but, but if I pull the trigger with a high-powered rifle and a bullet goes through an innocent Palestinian and a member of Hamas that were responsible for killing my kid, am I guilty of killing an innocent person? Yes. Or is the member of Hamas who chose to put the innocent Palestinian as a shield guilty of killing that person. Uh, you have both committed a well, sin. I mean, th- th- there's the quandary, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're thinking about <laughs> things. And, and you, it, you have a way of, of putting these things in a... In but a, that's, where, that's where the Israelis are going to be this time right. next week. You no, know, you're absolutely I mean, that, right. That's, you, you, do but you really you believe... Think. I mean, think about that. Sure. I mean, you're going to storm a building... And you know there are members of Hamas, and you know they're going to use innocent Palestinians as shields, and you've got to decide whether to kill everybody or not. And I think the Israelis have made their minds up. They're going to kill everybody. I think they've kind of, you know, they said grace over that. And, and I think innocent Palestinians will be slaughtered because Hamas is using those innocent Palestinians as human shields. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD, good morning. Good morning. How are y'all doing? Hey, Larry. So, you know, we talk, you talked about, you know, who's gooder and who's badder, right? 
so if tomorrow the United States government decided to just sort of go full board evil, right, would you and I be evil? No. But would our country be evil? Would the United States be evil? Yes. And so if someone has to correct the United States, it's possible that United States citizens, though not evil, may be caught up in what the government of the United States had done. We would pay the price, right? Well, in Political Science 101, we learn, regardless of the regime, king, dictator, terrorist organization, whatever, there's more Palestinians than there are Hamas members. And any time those people wanted to, they could rise up. Now, it doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen. It happens in a lot of countries. They, they, they finally decide that the government is too evil, and they rise up. The Palestinians have had 60 years to rise up. They don't have a problem with this existentially, okay? They may say, well, I'm not going to pull the trigger. They don't care that their government does. But regardless, their government has caused them to have to suffer. No different than if the government decided we're not going to let any any uh, food come into our country. Well, would innocent Palestinians starve because of that decision? Yes. And we would say, wow, you need to do something about your government, right? But when their government goes and provokes a, a you know, powerful enemy, all of a sudden we want to say, no, 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 that's not their fault. But this is the direct result of their government's action. you got to remember, Hamas is a terrorist cell, but they are the official government of the Palestinians. So their people are going to suffer because their government has made bad decisions and done evil things, just like any other group in the world has and will when their government decides to go rogue. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. See, see and that's, that's kind of an interesting point. I wanted to get there. The world perceives Hamas as a rogue terrorist organization. Gaza perceives them as their government. I mean, the majority of people in the world today would say Hamas. Is Hamas a rogue terrorist organization? Of course they are. But they're also a legitimate government of a particular place in the world. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, a lot of people are comparing this to 9-11. I don't buy that. I mean, to me, it's closer to the Holocaust. I mean, and, I, and I'm not trying to, to provoke or be sensational or, or try to stir an emotion. Um, I mean, I went back and looked. About 2,900 people died. Um, no hostages were taken. They didn't target elderly and children. Um, right now in Israel, about 1,300 people have been killed. Um, about 100 or more hostages have been taken. Uh, it's known now that they intentionally targeted children, women, and the elderly. Um, so I, to me, the nine 11 comparison, I mean, nine 11 was horrific. I mean, it was a terrorist attack, no doubt about it. But once again, there was no intent to target children and women and the elderly. There were no hostages taken. Um, I mean, it was the, 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 the ending of innocent human life, no question about it in the name of Allah. But, but this to me is a little bit different. That's a lot different because they have taken hostages and they did target what you and I would consider the most vulnerable. Let's go to the phone. Mandon Florence. Good morning, man. Hey, guys. I, I find that the whole thing a bit strange. I keep hearing people talking about what what we should do or 
or something like that. And, and I'm just I'm thinking it's not our job to do anything. Israel is our ally. Palestine is Matt, not. is it your is it your okay. job to stop and help an old lady who's laying in the road? But I, I, let me let me just finish. I, I haven't got. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. About I'm America. sorry. I'm sorry. I'm talking about America's response to uh, the attack. It, like like we're just going to up and send people there. Uh, Israel is their own country. Uh, I support them handling their business. Um, but if, to back to your uh, discussion about like you know this being more comparison to the Holocaust. I agree with that, too. And uh, look, the folks that are in Palestine and in Gaza, or the Palestinians that are in Gaza, um, there are a lot of ways to me, like, sympathizer Germans for the Nazi party back in the day. I mean, maybe they didn't pick up a gun and go out there and kill Jews, but they harbored these guys. They allowed it to happen. And what's that old thing, you know? All it takes for evil to prevail is good men to do nothing. So I don't feel bad about whatever's going to happen to them. Cut the lights off. Cut the power off. They've enabled this stuff to happen with a wink and a nod. We can't pretend to be a bunch of idiots about the whole process. But as far as our reaction to it, it's not our country, but Israel's our ally, so we support Nathan, and that's it. Thank you. Appreciate that, Matt. See, that's, and that, that's a fair response. I mean, I think everybody, not everybody, some don't. The majority of people believe we do something. I mean, we, we're, we're dealing, to, to, to me, and, and this is the word I keep using, guys, I mean, it's evil. I mean, it's evil. I mean, it, it, it's terrorism to fly planes into buildings and kill innocent human beings. There's a different degree of evil when you, when you show me an infant child and their body is riddled with bullets. And I know in my heart they would do it to your kid, my kid, or somebody else's kid they consider an infidel. I mean, that's evil. I'm not saying what we should or shouldn't do. I mean, I'm loud and proud America first. I'm as non-interventionist as I've ever been. But I do wonder what our responsibilities are in relation to stopping evil from prospering in any part of the world. Do we have an obligation or responsibility to stop evil from winning at any corner of the world? That's, that's a fair question. I don't know the answer to that. And I would imagine there are a million different answers to that very hypothetical question. But, but I do believe this, and I put on Facebook yesterday, um, I think the greatest invention, other than yoga pants, that, that man has ever, or we'll take a break now. Two minutes. Okay. Uh, you're doing, two, okay, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You're losing me with the hand signs there. I don't speak that, okay, I got you. <laughs> two minutes and then a break. Yes. Um, okay, good deal. So, so I believe um, that the wheel is a great invention. Um, the wheel has improved the, 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 the lot of man- exponentially I mean, there's no doubt about it we we have planes landing on wheels we have trucks transporting goods in the name of commerce all over the country and the world uh, because of the wheel we got a wheelbarrow from ancient greece we got you know um uh, formula one race cars nascar race cars drag racing motorcycle racing bicycle riding I mean, the wheel is it has been an amazing invention that it advanced mankind in, in, in unbelievable ways. Fire is not an invention. Fire is a discovery. Well, but once man discovered what we could do with fire, I mean, we've refined oil into gas. We've hooked, I mean, cooked. We've heated. We've propelled rockets into outer space. I mean, so fire and, and the wheel have had monumental impacts on our life, on our civilization, on society in general. I believe 
I believe that that another ah, it's not an invention, it's not a discovery, but rather a gift. I think one of the great gifts God has given us is an ethic, the Judeo-Christian ethic. And I think the Judeo-Christian ethic requires me to care. Now, now it doesn't require me to do X, Y, or Z, but it requires me to compare. I mean, to care, my humility, my humanity, my, my, my charitable disposition. I mean, whatever is inside of me comes from somewhere and is guided by something. And, you know, for me personally, it's the Judeo-Christian ethic. And I don't think I can know that an infant child was riddled with bullets because they are Jewish and not be called to do something. Now, now once again, I don't know what that is. I don't have any idea. Uh, Can I single-handedly fix this? Of course I can. Can I root evil out of the world? Of course I can. Um, Do the Jews deserve to be defended on everything they've ever done since the beginning of time? Of course they don't. But but I do believe that, that, once again, the wheel has made the world a better place. The discovery of fire and what man can do with fire has obviously made the world a, a better and more productive place. The ethic that I have that, that guides my consciousness and my humility and my humanity and my caring for my fellow man, I can't neglect that. Now, now once again, what to do, that's what we're trying to, to figure out together. Take a break. Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937, our number. Somebody's on the phone. Let's go there. Bert's in Florence. Hey, you're on the air. Good morning. I, I just got a couple of points of history that, that makes me look to the future and wonder what we're going to say in the future. Because if you go back long ways, back to ten hundreds, 100s, uh, you know, the, we had these people that today we call the Vikings. You know, then back then they called them godless barbarians. But nobody ever talked about the fact that the Christians went in there to a land of farmers and traders that weren't bothering anybody and took their gods and forced those people to convert by force, okay? And that's what set off what we call the Vikings, okay? They, they didn't just come out of nowhere and start attacking, all right? They had a reason. They were tired of the Christians destroying them. Then you go up to the 1800s right here in America, and you have the godless barbarians that were attacking little settlements, but nobody ever talked about those people that went in there to land that wasn't theirs, built a little fort and said, oh, this is my land now, and started killing what you know for a while they called the Indians, and today we call the, the uh, Native Americans. Nobody ever talked about that side, and you're seeing the same thing today. You've got Israel that went into a land that wasn't theirs. It said so in a book, so it's ours now, and they started killing the Palestinians, and now they're upset that the Palestinians are fighting back, and so they go, oh, we have no choice but to go and destroy them. So we're just repeating history, and you know, it was brought up a rogue nation. Well, America's already a rogue nation. We go into lands all over the world that are not our business at all. And we go in there and say, oh, we're spreading democracy. Well, no, we're going in there and stomping out their way of life and telling them, oh, here's a better way of life. Well, maybe it is a better way of life to us. Bert, name a country in the world that was not created by conquest. There is none, but that's my point. 
you, you just identified Israel as some little old lady. Would you help a little old lady? Okay, well, we're not helping a little old lady. Israel's saying we're going to go into another land and kill those people, and we're discussing helping them do that. We're joining a gang. This isn't some little old lady. But, but you've given examples smaller. of land taken by conquest that you don't much care for. Give me another example of a land or a nation formed without conquest being a part of it. I'm not sure I understand your question, but I, I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm not saying uh, America has been. America was established just like every other nation of the world was established by conquest. Right. Exactly right. But we we are telling. So is every nation in the world side. today on the sinful side of history? At one time, yes, yes, absolutely. When in any nation decides to go into another land and take that land, then from your view, your own view. Okay? So, so, so who's the original owner? The original owner doesn't matter as much as my point of we're not. Bert, we got to take a break. Hard break, top of the hour. I'm sorry. 843-661-0937. Back in a few. The world is losing its mind. It's crazy. It's chaotic. And America doesn't have a speaker. Some believe that's a really, really monumentally important and big deal. I think the Orioles and Braves losing to the playoffs is a bigger deal. Ryan Schmelz is with us. What's up with our Braves and Orioles, my man? So we should have probably kept our mouths shut and not tried to, <laughs> to, to tease that so much. I think that's what happened, right. if, I'm, if I'm making any guesses. No, but I think we were victim of that long layoff, Ryan. I mean, the, the, the Braves won 104, the Orioles won 101, the Dodgers won 100. Yeah. And between the three teams, they won one postseason game. The Braves lucked up one kind of won it late, but I, they just got to revisit this format. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that over a beer one of these days. We got important business exactly. to talk about, and that is the House Speaker battle. Where are we now? It's like the Republicans can't take yes for an answer. Yeah, well, I think we're kind of in many ways back to square one, right? Steve Scalise dropping out yesterday. Uh, now Republicans are going to meet behind closed doors and they're going to decide on their rules, which is important because some believe that the rules process and how they elect a speaker was what ticked a lot of people off when Scalise got the nomination in the first place. So they'll meet behind closed doors. Uh, the, the rumblings behind Jim Jordan potentially being the nominee again is certainly out there. Uh, but whether or not somebody else jumps in today uh, is a question mark. And also whether or not Jordan has the votes to get speak the speakership uh, is also a question mark, too. Jordan didn't get the votes, endorsed Scalise. Scalise couldn't whip the, the I don't know, enough members to get him to 217. Does, I mean, does, does, does Jordan, I mean, isn't that a bit contradictory? I endorsed the guy that got the most votes, but now I want to be the speaker again. I mean, they, they've got themselves in a conundrum. Is that fair? Well, maybe, yeah, in many ways, yes. But the, I mean, the question mark is, can they even find somebody who can get 217 votes? And since Jordan, you know, went through the process of campaigning and got a lot of support, yeah, you know, there are a lot of members who feel that, hey, he deserves a chance to figure to, to see if he can get that 217 mark. And if not, well, then we have to try again. And, and that's going to be the big question is, you know, if not Jordan, then who could get 217 votes. That's just going to be the big mystery because it just seems like the party is so divided right now. Well, we appreciate you keeping us updated, Ryan. Thank you for your time. Hey, have a good one. Thank you. 843-661-0937 is our number. Um, kind of an interesting few texts I get during the break. It's um, I still believe that, and Rev will do this one of these days, one of these days, <laughs> uh, a way for you to interact via text or Facebook or Twitter 
Uh, we're doing Facebook Live, not right now, but we do uh, portions of our show every day, Facebook Live. We want to have more interaction. Um, I mean, I've been very complimentary to the audience and listeners, and, and I want to reiterate that. I mean, you guys have really, really, really confirmed my belief that there are a lot of very intelligent people listening to conservative talk radio. Despite what mainstream media tries to stigmatize us as, we are very curious souls with uh, varying degrees of intellect, but none of us are stupid. And uh, and it's interesting to have this this debate. Um, I, I, I respect Bert's opinion. I, I disagree with him, but I certainly do uh, respect his opinion. Um, is there another someone on the phone ready to give an opinion? Uh, there seems like there always is. Okay. And again, we appreciate that. Bird, Marlboro County, good morning. Good morning, Ken. Uh, of course, we all know now it looks like the ground offensive is probably within less than a day of starting. And it appears that uh, Israel has decided that uh, this thing is going to be a, a long thing, I believe, going in. They have decided that uh, the northern frontier where Hezbollah is at, who, is, who has launched a few missiles into Israel, but they've got the most sophisticated systems. And for what I understand, uh, Israel's ordered a million people in the northern part of uh, Gaza to move out for safety. And I think Israel thinks that uh, Hezbollah was going to jump in anyway, so they're going to go after the The thing is that's the most danger for them, which is Hezbollah with their sophisticated system. Uh, Hamas, all they had was missiles that they light a fuse, and they don't know where they're going to go, but they land in villages a lot of times. But uh, Hezbollah has, uh, like I said, systems that uh, – Syria and Russia have given them that can target uh, things all the way down to Tel Aviv and the whole, actually the whole uh, country of uh, Israel, I guess. So it looks like uh, they're going to make a concerted effort. They're going to go after Hezbollah. They, they're going to go after Hamas. And and I'm sure that uh, Iran's going to be a player in this thing, too, which I just want to get your opinion, Ken. Thank you. Appreciate that, Verd. Um, well, I mean, it's kind of an interesting question. We, we, we debated this morning and I do believe there's a difference in members of Hamas and, you know, a fellow Palestinian. But is anybody, have I missed anything? Because I've tried my best to keep up with every little nugget of information that, that has been out there. Some, some I discount, some I dismiss, some I pay closer attention to. Has anybody heard a Palestinian condemn what Hamas has done? That's just kind of interesting yeah. to me. I can't think of it. Has anybody... To, to be fair... We're not really hearing from them at all. Not because, I, I mean, I think. What do you mean we're not hearing from them at all? Well, it depends on which Palestinians you're talking about. Because I saw some guy come on and he did condemn Hamas, but as a group, not. He was defending the Palestinians, not Hamas. I don't remember his name, but he was on I, like I, I, I am BBC. perfectly fine with, 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 with defending the Palestinians. Sure. V- very, very appropriate. But condemning Hamas, shouldn't that be a layup? Unless, you unless you hate the Jews. I mean, unless you just, I mean, you hate the Jews, but you're not willing to say it. You're not willing to sign up and join a terrorist organization that wishes to exterminate Jews from the planet Earth. I mean, I'm, I'm asking a serious question. I understand defending the Palestinians. I've heard a couple of Palestinians defending uh, that their ethnicity, their you know their their way of life, their belief, uh, that their 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 uh, their right to exist. I get that. I mean that's defending the Palestinians. I've yet to hear a Palestinian 
condemn Hamas. And I'm just wondering, have I missed that? Is there somebody out there representing the Palestinian people that has condemned what Hamas has done? And by that, I mean butchering and slaughtering and mutilating women, children, and elderly. I, I, that, that's a layup to me, unless you hate Jews, unless you kind of like what Hamas is doing. you just rather not be a part of doing it. Let's go to the phone. Rachel in Florence, good morning. Hey, good morning. Um, so if you're looking for an interview of Palestinians who are condemning Hamas, go to the, the French version of CNN. It's France Frangat, um, France, France 24. Um, they, they're, they're interviewing people on the street. Hamas got elected as the representative government in uh, Gaza, basically because Hamas either bought the votes or bullied people into voting or threatened, and threatened their lives and their jobs. There are plenty of people, plenty of Palestinians who do not like Hamas but had no choice, but that's where they live. That's where they had to stay. There's no one else, where, nowhere else to go. Um, the average Palestinian probably doesn't care whether, whether Hamas is in charge or not. Certainly there are fanatics and zealots who believe in what Hamas is doing. But if you go to international news sources like France 24, like BBC, you will get those interviews. Thank you, Rachel. Appreciate that. 843 I'm going to do that. I'm going to see if I can spend a, a bit of time today trying to uh, aggregate some of the because uh, I think that's a fair. I mean, it, I think, but I mean, it goes back to really the crux of the matter. Um, Hamas has been elected to govern the Gaza Strip, right? I mean, you know, we we said Monday and Tuesday. I don't know if they knock on your door right. with a ballot how are and, and a machete. I mean, I don't know, and mm-hmm. I I don't know how I'd vote if I were a Palestinian. They showed up at my door with a a ballot and a machete, but but and and we have to form some of these judgments from afar. I mean, it probably is a bit unfair. But I don't know how to form an opinion any way other mm-hmm. than that. I mean, I accept some of this. Once again, some of the information I dismiss. Some of the information I discount. Some of the information I kind of try to better understand. Okay, this seems to be a fairly reasonable articulation of what is happening in, in Israel. And I guess you'd have to consider that they may have dem, you know, somewhat democratically been elected. Well, I mean, and, and I, I, I want to ask this. This is a, a very interesting question to me, and maybe we can together research this. What percentage of Jews believe that Palestinians and Jews can live together in, in some reasonable peace? I mean, when, when you say peace and tranquility, I'm not talking about, yeah, I'm talking about heaven. I mean, you know, Chicago's in America. San Francisco's in America. I mean, how many kids will get murdered in Chicago this weekend? I mean, if you ask the families of the kids who get murdered in Chicago, America's not a real peaceful place, right? So, so peacefulness right. has certain degrees of, of, of inference. So, so my point is, I'd love to know this, and I don't know how to get there. Josh, maybe you can help us. You're, you're the young research guru. What percentage of Jewish people believe there can be a coexistence of Palestinians and Jews? And what percentage of Palestinians believe believe that? I mean, that's kind of an interesting point to me. Do do X percentage of Jews believe they can coexist? And do X percentage of Palestinians believe that they can coexist? Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You're on. I'll tell you, that government doesn't. I believe the Jews have pretty much been hated since their existence. But uh, that being said, you know, uh, if you, everybody acts like what Israel's doing is something. I mean, what you, you, when you watch the Japanese went through China and Korea, and they were 
torturing and murdering and raping women, killing babies, chopping people's heads off. You look at what the Germans were doing. And then, you know, and then we turned around and we bombed Dresden, Hamburg, and the Germans were bombing cities. So civilians, as you said earlier, being on the wrong side, it's, it's a great way to get killed. You may not have been a Nazi, but every blonde-haired, blue-eyed, uh, baby, grandma, granddaddy, and everybody got burned up to firebombs. You may not have been 100% behind that Emperor Hirohito or whatever, but you sure as heck got hit by that Nagasaki Hiroshima bomb. You know, but, uh, so, I mean, that's just, that's war. And, you know, and, and to sit there, you know, sometimes you almost feel like you need to slap the stupid off certain people's lips. You know, you, you sit there and, and, and blame Christianity for all this stuff. It's people. It's not. It's people doing stuff to glorify themselves. It's not glorifying God. Okay, so you know, and so every opportunity you get to, to, to blame Christianity, well, yeah, you can blame religion all you want, but you know, but it's not God that you blame it. You know, if you glorify God, you glorify God. But here's my next question, kid. You look at World War II, at the end of the day, you probably could argue that 20 million or whatever was total dead. And there's enough. I mean, a lot of people benefited from World War II. They benefited off a lot of poor people dying, but they benefited. A lot of people are benefiting off this. A lot of people benefited off Korea and Vietnam. A lot of people are benefit, benefited off of these, the war that we've been fighting since the first George Bush came along. They're benefiting. And at the end of the day, you need to ask yourself, and people are benefiting in Russia and Ukraine, who is going to benefit from this war? Who's going to, they're, they're somewhere down the line. Look who's going to benefit from this war. Look who's going to get more powerful. And look who's going to have more money. It may not necessarily be the people that live in these countries, but there will be people benefiting. And that will probably tell you right there about all you need to know. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the 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 I mean, Breeze is arguing that I can't speak for everybody, but but I said it earlier this week, and and I'll reiterate, I have a different feeling about what's happening in Israel than I do uh, Ukraine. I accept that butchering and 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 human atrocities are happening in Ukraine. I am, I mean, I'm sympathetic to that, but I'm not moved. I, I'm I'm not. I'm not as invested in that. And, and I told Josh, I know that is my adherence to the biblical worldview. Israel does have a different place in my belief system than, than Iraq or Iran or, uh, uh, you know, Ukraine or Russia or Germany or, or Poland. Um, do, do I become impractical as a result of that? Do I become inconsistent? I think Josh kind of indirectly accused me of being a little bit inconsistent. And hypocritical. I'm not offended by that. In fact, he kind of walked in the other day and said, hey, I don't want to say this, but I'm going to say this. I said, Josh, you can say whatever you choose to say. He knows the conversation. You ain't going to hurt my feelings. I mean, I promise you that. Um, you have every right. and I, and I, and I but, but I'll admit that. I mean, I'm putting that on the table, that I do have this different feeling about what we should or should not do. It's easy for me to say no more money for Ukraine because I don't believe America's safety and security is at risk. It, it's I can talk myself into believing that what happens in Israel is very important to America's fate and future. 
And maybe that's my out. Maybe I'm, I'm saying that uh, it's not about the Bible and God's land and or God's holy land and, you know, the God of Abraham and King. It's not about that. It's about the, the, the sleeper sales that I'm afraid have made their way into our country via the southern border. And they're motivated by what? Taking a part of Ukraine, Crimea, Georgia, the Donbass region? No, they're motivated by making their religion the only religion in the world. And, you know, Jews and Christians are considered, considered infidels. Take a break. Back at a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Callers on the phone. Let's go there. Carl in Sumter. Good morning, Carl. You're on the air. Hey, uh, Ken, uh, I, I, I want to say something. Other. You know, you just listen to me, you know. In other words, uh, you're a Christian, right? Correct. All right. When you when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you became a descendant of Abraham by faith. You understand what I'm saying? Sure. All right. In other words, uh, that land in Israel belongs to God's people from the Red Sea, from Egypt to all the way to the River Euphrates. And if they want to march in there, they want to take, they want to move their line back because that land belongs to Israel. Thank you, Carl. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Joel in Mullins. Good morning, Joel. You're on. Thank you, sir. Uh, Mr. Hart, I was wondering, um, whenever he shows me right, the last time uh, the Congress was controlled by the Republicans, they did almost nothing in the House. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, all this bickering and this lack of compromise and being able to get together is, is an indication of forked taste of they do when they do get in back into um, into session. Like, can the Republicans actually govern? Can are they capable now of doing something for this country? Thank you. Appreciate that. I've I've not defended uh, the Republicans governing. I just think they're less dangerous than the than the Democrats are. Um, they, they, thank you. <laughs> thank you for the call. Appreciate it. We do have, it's kind of interesting. You'd call it this particular time we have with us on the phone. I think Congressman Russell Fry, um, it's not F R I D A Y, but rather F R Y D A Y. It's one of those chosen Fridays. Good morning, Congressman. How are you? It's a great Friday. Uh, but, I'm doing well. Before we get to the speakership and some of the confusion surrounding that, I want to get your take on, um, what what our expected involvement will be if, if Russell, if Congressman Fry were um, king of the world, he's not, and we don't need a king in America. But if Congressman Fry um, had a seat at the table to decide what America should or should not do in regards to the horrific actions of Abbas and 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 now Hezbollah in Israel, one of one of our most steadfast allies, just kind of um, walk me through what you think should happen, Congressman. Well, I think where you have large consensus right now um, is, you know, House Republicans passed a state and foreign ops bill just a couple weeks ago, right? Uh, and in that bill, there were there was direct funding um, of protections uh, for Israel, some of their defense. Uh, we've done this for a while. They purchased weapons from the United States, uh, things like, things of that nature. So I think you're going to see that. Where, where I think it gets really kind of nebulous is whether they whether Democrats or some Republicans try to pair it with a Ukraine. Uh, I have advocated it be separate, but 
for sure, I think you see kind of wide bipartisan support for, um, you know, enabling them the defense capabilities to, you know, to make sure that they can defend their homeland. Interesting. Uh, okay. Let's shift gears and go to the speakership. Um, I can't understand. I mean, I, I thought we had a deal. I mean, you, you have a hotly contested caucus vote. Uh, it's a secret ballot. One guy gets, you know, uh, a few more than the other guy gets, but he can't drum up the support to get to 217 to become the speaker. It, it seems to me we're no better off today than we were the day we took McCarthy or um, or voted a motion to vacate McCarthy. It, it, am I missing something here? Give me a more optimistic um, scenario. Well, look, I mean, I think, and I've said this from the beginning, both Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan would make excellent speakers. I mean, I was for Jim Jordan. Um, you know, he came up short. He went and, you know, worked for Steve Scalise. I did that. But there you have to get to 217. And what, what I don't want is to go to the floor and have 15 rounds of nonsense again. I want to have a speaker. And so whoever that is, like I think a lot of us have just said, let's get to 217, whoever that may be. Uh, sounds like I talked to uh, Jim Jordan last night. He's he's going to run again or try to get to 217 today. Uh, we'll see. It's, you know, it's intriguing, but you know, speakers' race is very different than everything else. And and there are you know there were some individuals who had deep concerns and they were insurmountable. I think Scalise tried to pull people into the room and figure out how to to get it done, but you know he ended up bowing out of it last night like it's intriguing it's interesting to watch uh and it's a little 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 raucous but um i think we got a chance today with the jim jordan i mean i think america wants jim jordan i mean we we have seen the calls that the district has received like they're ready to have him and i think he provides house republicans um with the american people wind in our sails to go do the things that we need to do um and so he'll have a chance today. I hope he can get there uh, because we need a speaker right now with, which, what, with what is going on in the country, with what is going on in the world. Uh, we need a speaker. And I think Jim Jordan, um, you know, was my first pick, uh, and I'll be with him today. Congressman, let, let, let's go down this road for a second because I think you can give a kind of an insider's perspective on this. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chair and co-chair of the National Party, comes on the show Thursday mornings. And, and Drew and I have a bit of a disagreement. I mean, I, I believe that the donor class and the power structure that have controlled the GOP for most of my adult life are in an asymmetrical relationship with its voters. I, I know it's always a little bit questionable. It's a little bit misaligned, disjointed, doesn't agree with one and the other. But but my argument is that, you know, we're in an ace. You just mentioned that the majority of calls coming into congressional offices around America support Jim Jordan. Uh, the polls right. show that 50% or north of 50% Republican primary voters support Donald Trump. But but at the same time, there are a, you know, kind of a donor class movement trying to recruit or find somebody else other than, than Trump. Is it fair or accurate from your perspective to say that the power structure of the GOP and its kind of newfound consolidation of voters are in an asymmetrical relationship? I think so. I think, you know, Maybe it's not that black and white, but I think you're on to something here. And, heck, I think that's the case with the Democrats right now. I mean, they're, a lot of their base is kind of moving away from that. Uh, so, you know, people want change in Washington. And, and I think the frustration that people have for up here, including me, only being here for seven months, is that this town 
rinses and repeats things all the time and they do the same things that got us the problems where we were to begin with. And, and nothing changes unless you force change. And uh, so I think you're right. Let's go back real quick, and then I'll let you get out of here. Congressman Russell Fry is with us this morning, 7th Congressional District of South Carolina. That includes the Grand Strand and Florence would be kind of the population hubs. But there's a lot of rural areas that Russell tries to to take good care of. Um, you, you care to give a prediction. What is the likelihood that Jordan prevails and becomes the speaker? I know you're working behind the scenes convincing, trying to whip people into, into you know supporting yeah. Jim Jordan. But, but, I mean, is it a big hill, a small hill, somewhat of a hill? Well, you got to lose. You can only lose four votes, um, you know, to get to two seventeen on the floor. I, I think if people could see the vote, then, you know, you're. It's easy to say I'm not for Jim today, uh, but when you actually have to go cast your vote in front of the American people uh, to to be able to do that, look, I think he's got a, a, a good opportunity. I think he's probably got a better opportunity than Steve Scalise uh, t- to get to two seventeen. Uh, he certainly has some people that. You know, he is not ideologically aligned with and they're, you know, they're concerned. Um, but I have always found Chairman Jordan to be, you know, uh, a a smooth you know, operator, a good faith actor. I mean, he wants the Republicans to be in control. He wants to govern uh, in the House and, uh, you know, he'll have a shot today. Uh, but I do think he's got a better chance um, than maybe a Scalise. Very well explained. Thank you, Congressman. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Enjoy the weekend. Do the same. That, that's kind of, um, you know, you got, you got these hard no's. And I mean, if they're hard no's, they're hard no's. And, and it, sometimes it's stubborn. Sometimes it's personal. Sometimes it's political. Sometimes it's, sometimes they're valid reasons. And sometimes, let's just be candid, they're very dumb reasons to be a hard no on someone like Scalise or Jordan. But, but at the end of the day, there were too many hard no's for Scalise to get across the finish line. How many hard no's are there with Jordan? We'll probably know by the end of the day today. Um, I mean, you, you'll find out today whether Jordan can coax some of the uh, some of the Scalise voters into being supporters of Jim Jordan. And I mean, it normally comes to one or two or three that the caucus really respects. And once um, I mean, once say uh, you know one, two, or three Scalise supporters say, okay, you know, Jim and I talked. I'm good with what he wants to do and where he wants to carry uh, the caucus. That that water can break. That dam can kind of break, and others. I mean, it might not have been their first choice, but they'll agree to let, let's not have it as a as an eventful speaker election this time as we've had in, in days gone by. Take a break. Back in a few. We're having to be judgmental. I mean, I don't like being judgmental of things I don't know. I mean, I, I even say things I'm not sure of because there's very few things in this world that I am sure of. Um, there are a lot of things I know, a lot of things I don't know. Josh, let's speculate for a second. I mean, we, we, the, one of the points we try to make is we think it's unfair to equate Palestinians with Hamas, right? I mean, we think that is unfair. We don't believe That's right. that every Palestinian is a terrorist or endorses terrorism. Um, about the only information I can find on Palestinian legislative elections are about 15 years old-ish, somewhere um, thereabout. And when you really break it down, stick with me for a second because we're, 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 we're assuming— that there are Palestinians that just absolutely don't want any part of Hamas. They want to coexist with Jews. Jews can coexist with Palestinians, and um, and John Lennon can they can they can Blair uh, or John Lennon's Imagine can be piped in on every speaker that blows sirens when Jews feel 
like they're in danger. But you got to be honest with yourself. And you got to say, okay, I don't buy that every German was a Nazi, nor do I buy that every Palestinian is a, is a member of Hamas and endorses the executing of Jews and the exterminating of an ethnicity of people. But when you look at the numbers, when you look at the math, there are 132 seats in the Palestinian Legislative Council. 44.45% or 74 seats are Hamas. I mean, we know they're terrorists. They make no bones about it. They loudly proclaim that Israel should not be a Jewish state and all Jews should be exterminated from the planet Earth. That's their ultimate goal. The, the other party that got about 40% of the vote, 41.43% of the vote, and have 45 seats is the Fatah party. Um, now, I told Rev during the break, that's Yasser Arafat. Uh, Arafat fought with the Muslim Brotherhood and opposed the creation of the Jewish state. I'm not saying he's a terrorist, hmm? um, but we're having to make determinations from afar. The, the guy that founded the Fatah party fought with the Muslim Brotherhood and opposed the creation of Israel as the Jewish state. So if you do the math, stick with me. 44 plus 41 is 85 uh, plus 0.45 plus is about 80, 86% of the Palestinian Legislative Council are either um, Hamas or Fatah. There are other parties, 2.62%, 2.92%, 2.41%, less than 1%. You've got the alternative, the independent Palestinians, the third way, the independents. I have no idea what their agenda platform is. Is that Cornell West and RFK Jr.? I don't know. I don't know. But 80, about 86% of the vote and, and the overwhelming, but all but five, seven, nine, uh, all but 12 seats in the 132-seat Palestinian Legislative Council are held by the Hamas party and or the Hamas organization and, and Fatah. And once again, Fatah did not execute Jews over the weekend, but their founder is Yasser Arafat. And we know, or I know a little about him. I mean, he fought with the Muslim Brotherhood and opposed the creation of, of Israel. So do, I mean, do, do, do 86% of Palestinians believe Jews have a right to exist or believe Jews don't have a right to exist? I mean, we're, we're playing games here with numbers. We're speculating. We don't have any choice but to but to speculate. But but to say it has a very diverse government and a lot of these Palestinians, now, now once again, you vote for Hamas or Fatah or else. We don't know. I mean, we don't have any idea. Um, but those are the dominant, dominant, dominant membership of the Palestinian Legislative um, Council. And that, that reflects a high percentage of Palestinians that lead me to believe they don't they don't care much for Israel or or the Jews. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning. You are on. I'll tell you, yesterday I thought you'd scare me to death with uh four horsemen of the apocalypse, pestilence and war, and I found out they were very well funded. They'd made a great profit off of their endeavors in war and uh, pestilence. And uh I think, I, and then you scared me even more with economics talk. So I think you got the scary Halloween stories in pretty much. Uh, it, it's it's rough stuff, but I uh, I had a father-in-law who fought in the Pacific, and war 
is a tough thing. And he credited, he was in a company that was reduced from 240 odd men and uh, officers to 87. And uh, he, uh, and he was talking about it. We were fishing. He got to talking about it one day, and uh, he he said they weren't they weren't giving up, and we weren't taking prisoners. He said it was an ugly thing, but that's the way it was. And uh, anybody that thinks that war is a frivolous thing, it's easy to talk about it. How I do this and I'll do that, but I can tell you from personal experience, when the guns start going off. Time is at a premium, and uh, so you can you can you can take what you want from that. But uh, when the guns go off, the time is at a premium. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Go to the phone. Someone else there. Daphne and Dylan. Good morning, Daphne. You're on. Good, mo- good morning, guys. Uh, every time that Hamas has attacked Israel from Palestine. America has tried to intervene, saying, oh, you know, we've got to have a truce, a truce. So what they uh, can do is now Blinken is going over to sing the same song. In other words, Israel allowed the Palestinians, Palestinians to come over, thousands of them, into Israel and work. They tried to work with the Palestinians, but that's not ever taken into consideration by any of these radicals that think they know what's going on. Uh, Israel has given the civilians 48 hours to get out of the way so that they can eliminate Hamas. You can draw parallels between what's happened in Israel and what's happening in America Palestine enabled those terrorists. The people sat on their butts and let the terrorists take over. We've done the same thing here. After 9-11, Bush would not go after the terrorist cells that were embedded in America. Then, seven years later, Barack Obama sent our tax dollars to Iran to finish their nuclear program and fund terrorists. Then Biden, all those anti-American people that infiltrated our government with the help of some who claim they are Republicans, are now in the judicial system, all the government agencies, and Biden shuts down fossil fuel exploration and trying to shut down all the resources He also opened the border to 150 countries, and then uh, forbids us to speak out against it. We cannot get out and demonstrate, uh, but they will allow the terrorists to bomb or uh, blow up whole towns to get out and demonstrate. So... We are headed down the same path again and again and again. We have let anti-Americans take over our country. Thank you, Daphne. 843-661-0937 takes Monday's 
to make Fridays back in 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Sam in Darlington. Good morning. You are on the air. Morning. Um, I'd just like to say that I think there's too much war lust coming from conservatives. Uh, seem to be calling for merciless war against Gaza and a lot of them like Lindsey Graham calling for war against Iran. I admit this war is complicated and I admit that um, in this country when we, when our ancestors conquered the Indians uh, there was a lot of a lot of rough and, and there's some what we call genocide went on and so you know I'm not I'm not saying that I'm holier than the Israelis, but um, but at the same time, Jesus said, "Those who live by the sword die by the sword." And uh, it seems like a lot of people now are wanting to live by the sword. And you know the restraint and um, and uh, following some rules and is is not, is a a way to save lives and. Um, We just need to think about that, and we also uh, need to remember that. Sam, can I can I ask you a question? You got my mind going a million miles, and I know you're a sincere man. Yeah, is a terrorist life worth saving? Um, if in actual self defense, you 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 are certainly, I think, I think the the Christian ethic says, you know, in actual self defense, yeah, it's. You have a right to kill the the terrorist, but but this thing about saying you know the they're all terrorists or they supported they elected the terrorists or something like that. Therefore, you know the, they're civilians and you know non-combatants. You know a fair game. That's a different thing. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's a complicated thing. I, I'll admit that, but um, yeah. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. And I go back to the um, uh, to the question I posed to, to Josh this morning. If I know that Hamas killed my wife, daughter, kid, family member, somebody I love with every fiber of my body, and I know Hamas did it. Hamas has basically admitted they did it, and they take glee and joy and pride in exterminating, you know, not Jews, but Americans. And, you know, we're infidels. I have a Judeo-Christian worldview. I've got to be... Uh, the, you know, I've got to be taken away. I've got to be put off the, you know, I, I can't exist in their world. And and they're using an innocent Palestinian as a shield. Am I within my Judeo-Christian ethic to pull the trigger and the bullet go through the innocent Palestinian and kill the person responsible for killing my loved one? I mean, is that a, is that a human quandary? Is that the human being in conflict? Um, you know, what do you do? I mean, you know, um, Hamas has said, yes, we killed your your daughter, and we'd do it again. The only reason that we didn't kill your son, your son wasn't there. And there's a member of Hamas, you know, 50 yards away, and I've got a high-powered um, assault weapon, and he's hiding behind an innocent Palestinian. Do I pull the trigger and the bullet go through both or not? I mean, I know that the, the good old boy answer is, well, I try to get a scope, you know, and and, and spare the innocent Palestinian. But what if there is no? I mean, that, that's, that's, a, that's a confusing moment that, that most people would find. I mean, I hope I never find myself. I hope you never find yourself in that position. 
But there will be those in the next week or so that do. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. We actually have a full house here. It's not a sitcom, but rather we've got all three of our, our delegation members sponsored by Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania. <laughs> um, I, I do want to lead with this. So, so I, I got, oh, I mean, I consider all three of these guys, my friends. Um, and when one of my friends does something a little bit out of the ordinary, I'm not saying they owe me a call or, or a heads up, <laughs> but I'd like to believe that friendship, uh, if it means anything to both people, sometimes it means something to one and not, and not the other, <laughs> then they, they let us know that they have done something a little bit out of the norm. Um, but, but, but I think I found out fourth hand, maybe fifth hand, Rev. <laughs> That, and, that and he I, casually mentioned it yeah, when he walked in today, but it's a big but deal. I, but no, no, no. I'm sure his friends knew all about it. I mean, I'm sure Phil right. and Mike knew all about it. Right. I was just not made real aware of it. So, um, you know, Jay Jordan went to the Supreme Court. Am I right? That That's correct. And sat front row. I had a very good seat. You paid good money for a Springsteen ticket, kind of, sort of, right? I think it was, uh, I think I had to be screened more times by the, the guards than I did go into a Springsteen. First time ever? In the Supreme Court? Yes. Now, I didn't get to say anything. They, they didn't that. want me to talk, uh, which is probably better for everyone, but I did get to go and uh, observe the situation, and they did, get, did give me a very nice seat, yes. Okay, you weren't there um, for nothing. I mean, there was an obvious reason, and it is uh, meaningful to the people of South Carolina. Tell us why you were there and, and how you feel the case was made on behalf of South Carolinians. So this is this is the culmination, um, really, of years worth of work by a lot of people for our um, congressional lines. Um, when we started redistricting back a couple of years ago, one of the things we had to do, uh, the House and the Senate jointly, was draw our United States congressional districts. Of course, that met with uh, a lawsuit. The national and state NAACP brought a lawsuit against. Um, many people, including Senator Alexander, uh, the, the speaker, and as the chairman of the redistricting committee, my name uh, got added as a name defendant in that lawsuit as well. That's, that's really, I told my wife, I said, I hope I'm, I hope I'm never again a name defendant <laughs> at the United States Supreme Court, so I need to go and, and check this out. Um, and that lawsuit went through the, the process as they do, um, ultimately um, um, went through the, the district court's system and uh the the supreme court decided to hear oral arguments on the case to basically make the determination of whether these lines are are constitutionally sound um if they're not we're going to be in in a bind and have to figure out how to fix these congressional lines before our next election um but i but sitting there and again i'm certainly not not an expert on the thoughts of, of these nine individuals um but i got the sense of that more than the or that the majority believes we did our job, um, and we did not draw lines based on race. We drew lines based on politics, and that is perfectly acceptable. And there's no perfect way to do this, is there, Philip? I mean, there's no there, there's no exact, precise way to draw boundaries or lines and, and create equity and fairness in every in every district. Well, certainly there is. When I draw in my district, <laughs> it's fair, right? I mean. So you want to get reelected, right? And that's, that's the number one goal of a politician. Like, or elect me again. Well, stack the deck in your favor so that you've got the best chance. I know I, I'm glad the case is over. They're not listening to me right now from the Supreme Court. But it's politics. It, it's men and women drawing districts that best Human beings. Them Human beings. To get reelected. And, and, and in this case, if you go back, I think, 10 years, you look at, at Clyburn. Uh, now, Clyburn wants a district he can get reelected to. 
but not just a Democrat. He wants a black Democrat, right? So he wants his district packed is what they call it. They pack it with, with the, the race that's probably going to vote for him. And, and race is the easiest way to pick that when 90, 95% of blacks vote in the Democrat Party. So he's more worried about a black Democrat winning. Now, what they're worried about this time is they want two Democrats because the House is real tight now. They want two. They don't care which two it is if they can oblige Clyburn and get him reelected again in a district that's got enough minorities in it to reelect him, fine. But what if they split those people all up and, and the blacks are evenly divided amongst them? Well, now it, the chances of Clyburn winning in a more white district are not as high, but they might get two Democrats. Listen, there's 40, what, 40 Four percent of the people voted for Biden last time. That's a Democrat, right? Okay. So how many House seats do Democrats deserve? If you want to look at it that way, how many seats should be occupied by a black when the entire state's what twenty six percent black? So everybody wants what they want for themselves. But this time it was kind of noticeably absent that Biden that uh, Clyburn didn't come in because he was getting pressure. I'm sure to have two Democrats from South Carolina. But what did he probably secretly want? I just want one for me. And, Mike, I mean, t- t- you're, you're newer at this than these guys are, but self-preservation is a reality. I mean, I, you know, I want people listening to this radio show, not a radio show. You want people to buy your cars, not not a car. Uh, Philip and Jay and you, I mean, you want to get elected to the Senate and, and the House. I mean, you know somebody's going to get reelected, so why not create advantages? I mean, to me, Philip's right. I mean, that's kind of the, the human condition but it's got to be regulated and, and kind of overseen by, by the judicial system. Yeah, well, first and foremost, I share your offense that I didn't know about this. <laughs> I'd have paid money. I'd have fundraised myself to see Jay Jordan stand up and say, no, you're out of order because you need me on that wall. <laughs> and hear the chief justice say, who is this guy? Like somebody to taste him. As I'm getting carried <laughs> yeah. out my yeah. the, the joy I felt in the, the vision of that as you were talking, <laughs> that'd have been good. Um, congratulations, Jay. That is very, very, very cool. Uh, Philip's right. And, and we're all in this to win. Um, that's part of why we run is to win. And I don't think anybody's ever run to lose. So you want to win. I know I'm naive, and I know the, the neophyte in the room. Um, I still think, though, that there's too many lines that are drawn. There's too many politicians who are picking their voters so that they have a very, very, very easy way to win their primary and an easier way to win their general election. And I don't think that's that's the intent, that once you win your primary, you don't worry about a general, uh, the plus 20, plus 30. I mean, I understand the convenience of that. But I think what happens is that you then have a small percentage of voters who are voting in the primary. You see the, some of the anemic numbers. Um, we had a special election down in Charleston for the, the Senate, and they had, uh, what, 4,400 people vote for a Senate seat. There's 113,000 total um, constituents in the Senate. That's a really small number when you look at then the percent of turnout. It's like 6.5%. So I think ultimately, Ken, if we could have more voters involved, it would allow them to hold their elected officials accountable and say to the person running, did you do what you say you're going to do? Did you follow through on your commitments? And then you have to run on, are you doing what you said? Not on the fact that the number is so heavily weighed for you. Let, let, let's go to this issue. And I, and I want to come back to state in just a minute, but I want to, but we, we can't not talk about this. All of us in this studio have professed our faith in, in Christianity. 
I mean, every one of us has said, I'm a Christian. I have a biblical worldview. Um, at times, it guides your politics. At other times, it's hard to kind of integrate that into the way uh, we make our decisions. Um, Jay, I mean, I'm not, I don't have a question. I mean, I, I've, I've opined all week. I mean, I got about 18 hours in the rear view of trying to better understand the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Uh, I, I'm on the record. I'm not as interested in Ukraine because I don't have the the biblical understanding of why Israel is so important in a Judeo-Christian's worldview. Um, I don't know the answer. I mean, I, I know killing innocent kids and slaughtering human beings isn't the, isn't the answer. Um, I mean, and, and once again, I don't have a question. You're, you're an elected <laughs> official. You profess your faith in in Christianity. What do you feel your obligation is to the situation the Israelis and Palestinians have historically and, and fairly consistently found themselves in? Well, there's a certain reality when when we elect someone, we we get the whole the, the you know the whole in the good end and the bad end of the stick, so to speak. Um, as a Christian, I bring my biblical worldview in my life, and I don't check it at the door when I'm going to the state house, and I don't you know, pull it back out when I get back to my house. I mean, it's something that influences. And I think as I look to my left of these guys, it's the same way. It influences my life. It influences my thought process. It influences my decision-making. And so as a Christian, I look to my Bible and it tells me that Israel is God's chosen people. Um, there's no, there's no misunderstanding that there's no, um, that's, that's the reality of what God's word tells me. Um, so they are different. Um, and that's not a slight to the Ukraine folks in any way, shape, or form, but Israel's different. Um, and as a Christian, and I think as a Christian nation, we have a certain responsibility if we claim, if we're, you know, and, and look, I, I don't want to get into that argument. Um, I, I won't get in that argument here, but we are a Christian nation. There, There's no argument in my mind about that. You can go, I was in D.C. just the other day, um, and the, you know, you can't walk three feet without looking at a monument, and there's a reference to God. There's a reference to the Bible. So, this is a different situation. That's just where where we are, and we do have a little bit different obligation as a Christian nation, at least founded as a Christian nation, in this particular situation. Philip, you know, I I look at uh, th- this is tough. It's like you you know you you get involved emotionally with this discussion about Israel because of our our history, our faith. I look at the Bible. It's obviously New Testament, Old Testament. And Old Testament seems to me like God realized that we were messing up pretty bad, that we couldn't follow all the rules, that we were never going to be perfect, and there wasn't really a route for forgiveness when you weren't. He sent Jesus here to give us forgiveness. And the theme of the New Testament is forgiveness and love. So maybe the Jews are still the chosen people. Maybe God was sent here to say, guys, we've, We've messed up. This this Old Testament isn't working. We need a, a way to get to heaven, a way to act while we're here on this earth that involves love. And, and until our hearts are changed, nothing's going to change. Go go look at the Middle East or, or really anything. Get a time-lapse video on YouTube that talks about the border changes in Israel or border changes in the Middle East or Europe. And it'll go through every year or flash every 10 years the changes in that. And it is just incredible how how many times the borders have changed all over the world. And and we're in a small perspective thinking we're sitting here in a civilized society with Christian views and love and all this. But you know what? It's still 
people lust for power, people lust for money, and they're going to do the bad things. They're going to take what they want. And the only way you keep what you have is to defend it with the strongest might. Mike? Yeah, right, big question. You had 18 hours talking about it. Um, I mean, in, in a nutshell, um, God's word is inviolable, and it's Old Testament, New Testament is still his word, and it's true, and the Jewish nation the Jewish people are his chosen people, um, which led me to quite a quandary this week talking to Sharice. I'm like, how do we pray for this? Uh, you, you know what? I believe in the power of prayer. Do we pray for peace um, when it's very clearly illustrated in the Bible that there is no peace in Israel? Um, and my wife, who's much smarter than I am, said that you know, we need to pray for God's will. It may, not, it may very well not be manifested in peace, um, but my role as a state senator, we're not making foreign policy but I do believe we need to shore up our defenses. I think the southern border um, is porous enough, and Biden is doing a, a, a job of preparing us to be attacked. Um, look at a Hamas member and look at many of the men coming over the southern border. Can you tell the difference at 2 in the morning if you're Border Patrol? Um, not just fentanyl, not just human trafficking. We are preparing for an attack, I believe, in this nation. I think it's coming because we will stand by Israel. And I appreciate Biden at this point, at least standing by Israel. But I believe as we continue to stand with Israel, we will suffer another attack here. And my question is, are we ready for it? Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. The entire delegation's here brought to you by <laughs> Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania. Somebody's on the phone. Let's go. Let's go there. Jim in Florence, you are on with the delegation. Hey, good morning, guys. I want to talk about, I want to talk about Judge Bentley Price. Uh, in late August, he released a career criminal on a felony gun charge with time served. And this thug went on to, uh, in September, he shot a citizen, shot a deputy in the head, and he ended up killing a sled canine dog. Um, lawyer legislators have a long history of judge shopping to pick Judge Bentley Price to plea their clients in front of, um, specifically like Beyond Tedder. Um, text messages, I think, were found on uh, the deceased attorney, David Ehlers, phone between him and a client uh, that um, they were talking about backdoor deals were in the works with Bentley Price. Um, recently, the South Carolina uh, Bar, the Judicial Qualifications Committee released uh, candidate evaluations in South Carolina Circuit Court Judge Bentley Price was deemed unqualified. Um, and Judge Price is up for reappointment soon. Do you all intend to reappoint um, Judge Bentley Price? Thank you. Anybody want to take that? Well, so the, the most um, brief answer to that is we'll, we'll have to wait and see if he even gets through the qualification process. Um, he has, as, as Jim said, gone through the first stage of that, and I, I did see that report. He was marked unqualified on one of one or one or two of the categories. I think there's six or eight categories. But he still has another layer to go through to even make it uh, to the General Assembly. He'll have to go through the JMSC process, um, which is coming up in November. Um, so I don't know that we're in a position to truly, truly say um, whether we would vote for him or not, because we don't know if he'll be one of the candidates, if he'll survive the scrutiny of JMSC. So I'd say the process has to do what the process does. There's still this probably not probably the highest bar to cross is that JMSC screening um, that Judge Price will have to go through. So to be determined. When judges make decisions the public perceives irresponsible, what should happen to that judge and how do we get there? Well, there there is a, a process that I don't think a lot of people um, 
dig into, um, and I, I get it. It's a very boring. It's a very boring process. But before a, a candidate ever gets to um, the general assembly for the for the voting process, there's layers of screening that candidate has to go through. The first one that Jim referenced is the the bar screening, and and then there before that, I, be, I believe there's the citizens panel that you go through. So you're going through <clears throat> two layers. Then you go before the judicial merit selection group, um, which convenes again coming up in uh, November. Uh, and then if you get through that, so you get through those multiple layers, then you are qualified to stand and to request the vote of the House and the Senate. So there's layers of process to which, you know, um, the public has input, lawyers have input, legislators and lawyers have, have input by way of JMSC before it ever gets to the General Assembly. Philip, you've made the comment. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, and um, I'm, not, I'm not giving it out here, but, but you believe that the raised awareness – and some of the conversations we've had have forced people who choose judges to be more particular. Is, is that fair? Yeah, and, and we've eliminated, I don't know, maybe a judge every two years from the process. We just, you know, they are a sitting judge. They go through this, and we don't like the way things have been going, and, and we've eliminated them. And, and so, I mean, there's got to be a way of recalling a judge at some point, and that, that's the method that we have. And, and I think well, I think if you give us a moment, we're going to have five Supreme Court out of five out of five Supreme Court justices who are conservative. So there's some positives about our situation where we sit now. I know there's there's some push right now to have some changes, and there'll probably be some changes in reaction. But don't forget, it takes a long time to eliminate a judge. It takes ten years of their service before they come back up. At six years, I'm sorry. So six years, and then we have to look at it again. So now, now the Supreme Court, they're 10. And so if you look, the Democrats had power, and they had stacked the, the deck with Democrats, and we've finally got to that point that we actually will end up with five out of five if things go as I expect. And that's, I mean, a lot of people don't, I mean, I'm not saying they don't understand this, and I understand the, the lack of patience. I mean, I'm, I'm no different than anybody else. I want it now. I mean, I want it done now. But there was an evolution in our state from Democrat to Republican. I mean, I don't know the number of House members and senators that were Democrats and are now Republicans. I would imagine it's fewer today than it was a couple of cycles ago when I was there. But, I mean, we've, we've had an evolution in our state from being uh, kind of a Democratic-governed state to a uh, kind of a Republican supermajority. Mike, my, my, you made – I guess this would be judicial reform. You made that a big part of your – um, campaign and your priorities of why you wanted to get involved. Uh, you got in, you, you saw what was happening, and you didn't like it, and you want to do um, some some pretty fundamental changes. Yeah, and I've learned, Ken, that, that legislating is a balance of, you know, where you stand personally as well as representing your constituents. And um, this town halls that I do, I've done 20 of them so far. Where we travel across the district. This Tonight, as a matter of fact, um, I'm doing my, my – 21st in Pamplica. Anybody wants to come out to Big T's at six o'clock um, can come on down to Big T's. And about a, if the next two weeks, I'll do 10 more town halls across the district to hear from constituents. And for the in, high information constituent who knows how the process works, how we select judges in this state, they know that we're one of only two states in the nation who do it like this, where the legislators have this much say in the judicial appointment process and review process. When they hear that, they see a, a tremendous conflict. So I have tremendous respect for those who think that the current process is the best way because there's not a perfect way. But I think 
this example that, that Jim even talked about is an example of why it's broken. The fact that you can have a lawyer legislator have so much influence on who is on the bench, but then try a case in front of that same judge is a reflection of a lack of accountability. If the governor were to appoint the judges and then it was advice and consent of the House and the Senate or a combination like that, then it's on the governor's shoulders to make that decision. But he's not trying a case before his appointment. I don't think there's a chance for objectivity of that judge. Not to say he's not a good person, but how can he sit on that bench? And if he knows he's in the last year of a six-year cycle and he is going to oversee a case where a f- influential member of the House Judiciary or Senate Judiciary or some lawyer legislator is trying that case, that didn't play in the back of his head that, well, you know, I, I do like my job, like my benefits, I like the robe, I like to stay here. Maybe if I have some gray area, how do I fall? Because it's not always black and white. It's got to be a better way than what there is. Jay, is there any interest at all? Let's get in the weeds here for a second. Is there, Phillips thought about there will probably be some changes. There always is. Is there any interest at all at changing the screening committee to allow the governor to have more of an influence? Yes, I think the short answer is yes. I think uh, right now the House is. That is that a reasonable debate to have? It's absolutely a reasonable debate to have. Um, I, I'll disagree with Mike just a little bit. Um, you know, talk about there's not a perfect way to do it. There's there's not a good way to do it. Um, it, <laughs> it it's really when you're talking about justice and freedom, which we say and we believe is the fundamental bedrock of and, and now. So we're talking about the process by which you take away justice and freedom from a citizen. It's only bad ways to accomplish that. It's, it's a difficult it's the most difficult thing we wrestle with in government. Um now, to the specific specific of the question, I think, yes, I think there's always the big part, biggest part of our job is probably always looking for ways to improve the way we do things. Um, having a discussion about the governor's involvement in the process is absolutely a necessary discussion to have. But we do need to step back. I think you just hit a, a very small fraction of the puzzle, which is the selection committee. Um if we're going to have a discussion on judicial reform, it starts with magistrate court. Magistrate court is the place where the majority of South Carolinians, if they're going to interact with the justice system, it's going to be in magistrate court. So we're going to jump to this very small nugget, which is the JMSC, for for fixing this problem and ignore the thing that the majority of South Carolinians deal with the most. Um, the magistrate selection, and I'll, I've said this Many times we have some great magistrates, but we have some magistrates that don't need to be magistrates. Magistrates are 90 percent of the time are the ones setting bonds and are letting people out, um, violent people out um, on bond. um, And that's just unacceptable. And you have essentially no screening process. You have very little testing to determine um, if this person is qualified. um, And it's in the hands of essentially one senator. And that was great probably when we were a truly agricultural state 150 years ago and things were a lot different. But there needs to be a better, better, more thorough selection process. And again, that's not to say we don't have some truly wonderful magistrates serving and doing a great job, but it's bigger than that. We'll explain. Take a break. Back in a few. See, these guys fancy themselves as college football prognosticators, but I ain't letting them get off that easy. We're going to do the public's work here. We had a conversation off the air, and I'm not going to ask Representative Lowe to disclose all the specificities because some of that stuff needs to be – I mean, that's making the sausage. 
but but Jay, Jay raised an interesting point that Mike has been a little bit you know redundant about, and that is the magistrates. But we have a messed up process, and I've always felt, Philip, and I want to go to you because you you'll be a part of this. I've always felt that the Chief Justice of the South Carolina Supreme Court could be a big aid and assistance in helping, dare I say, purge some of these magistrates who honestly don't need to be magistrates. We're, we're going to get a new Chief Justice. I don't know who it's going to be. Maybe you guys do or maybe you don't. But do you believe the new Chief Justice that the General Assembly confirms will be the kind of person to address some of these magistrate uh, inefficiencies? So our current Justice, Chief Justice, will be stepping down. We'll have a new one, and only one's running for it. Kitteridge is running. He's one of the brightest ones that that I've ever met. I, I really like the guy. He's very conservative. When he gets in, he'll have the opportunity. If he wants to, he can change out every chief magistrate in the state. So whoever's been hiding behind whatever protection that that the current chief justice, who is uh, more of a liberal, um, uh, more of, you, you like, I said that, yeah. I've tried You're to be kind. kind. Well, he was a Democrat member of the House. Right. So he he's kind of, I guess, he's protected some folks that I think need exposing, need removing. I think they don't need to be a magistrate at all, some of them, but at least we take them out of the chief magistrate role, and he'll have that ability. And you know, that's what we got to press on him. Even though no one's running against him, I'm going to have a meeting with him and say, this is what we need. And, Mike, is that something you're interested in, meeting with the chief justice-to-be to make sure he understands and is interested in aggressively addressing this issue? I am. And, and actually, I've, I really appreciate Judge Kittredge because we have met already now twice. And we met in my office and even in, in the Senate office. And one of the points I brought up to him is the fact that non-resident senators— have so much say in magistrates not in their county is to me a broken part of the system. I understand that we no longer have one senator per county because counties vary in size. Um, and this is not an indictment of anyone in particular. Uh, you know, I'm the senator for Florence County. Now I have two precincts in Darlington County, two of the 60 or so, but I don't make any decisions on magistrates in Darlington County, because that's not the way that senator sets it up. But it was set up in Florence County, as an example, and people need to know this. There's four senators who have a portion of Florence County, the senator from Clarendon County, the senator from Williamsburg County, the senator from Marion County, and then me. But of the 10 magistrates, currently the process is set up that eight of those 10 are divvied out to the other three senators. And it, I think it's fundamentally broken that you can pick a magistrate for a county but that you don't live in that county because you need to have the accountability and the responsibility. You need to walk in the grocery store and a restaurant and people say, hey, can I talk to you about that magistrate? Not, oh, I don't live here. I live in Manning or somewhere else. And, and Jay, this isn't the silver bullet or, or the magic wand, but to Philip and Mike's point, the, the, the opportunity to put a conservative judge as head of the South Carolina Supreme Court doesn't just change that court. It changes the judicial system throughout the state of South Carolina. Who the chief justice is has a tremendous, that that person has a tremendous amount of authority that people don't, it's, it's more behind the scenes. And you would expect people to know that. I mean, people right. don't, they're, they're watching Seinfeld. On, on its face, the, the chief justice is just one vote, just like the other four members of the Supreme Court. But the reality is the chief has so much technical authority to determining a, a bunch of behind the scenes thing, things that really matter. 
So who does that job is very, very important. And and we're comfortable in where we appear to be headed in regards to that. The three of you look like that, that you're comfortable, whatever the outcome is, you know it's going to be better than the current than the current model. If you're a conservative Republican, if you're a liberal Democrat, you probably don't like what's what's headed our way. But I think that's the frustration. South Carolina is a deep red conservative state. And how did we end up with a you know a, a former Democrat member of the House as our as our Chief Justice? But this is I mean the the, the wheels of government grind slow. We, we don't like it, but but it's a reality. Well, in, in particular, the Supreme Court, you know, those are individuals that have gone through the judicial. They've been on the bench for a, a very long time for the most part. You don't usually elect someone in the Supreme Court who has, who's never served as a judge in any capacity. Um, the traditional path to being chief, becoming Chief Justice is, is seniority. The longest-serving member of the Supreme Court becomes uncontested, essentially, and, and rises to the Chief Justice. The, the reality is that's something that's going to have to change. Um, we're going to have to take responsibility and say, nope, the chief justice is too important. We're going to have to, to elect the most qualified person. Um, and if, if the, like the time before, if the, if the other individuals in the Supreme Court don't want to run out of deference, then we will have to cross that bridge, but we're going to have to deal with that. Philip, I want to go to you real quick. This is not specific to you, but you, you, you're kind of the, you're the guy I listen to on issues like this. Uh, we talked about Israel and we talked about, uh, Hezbollah and we talk about Hamas and we talk about you know, um, the slaughtering of innocent men and women, children and elderly. Um, you've always believed that one of the, I, I don't know, one of the most important attributes of the American experiment is the right for someone to arm themselves and defend themselves. The Second Amendment, gun ownership in Israel. You, you kind of look to me like funny when I said that. It's 2%. I mean, it's 2%. We, we went back and said, how do we keep South Carolinians safer? Isn't securing the Second Amendment one of the most obvious ways for South Carolinas to South Carolinians to feel safer than they would in liberal blue state California. I think so. You know, Jay calls me gunslinger. He he started that whole you know nickname idea, right, Jay? I'll, sure, I'll take credit for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not the only name he calls yeah, it, but yeah. we're on the air, so never mind. <laughs> it, it certainly wasn't you who named yourself. That. <laughs> no, Lowe would never do that. No, no, he would never do that. So, you know, you got to defend yourself. You have to protect yourself. If you're waiting for a policeman to defend you, they're probably just going to come in and be filling out an incident report. They're going to be asking your loved ones while you're bleeding or, or dead or gone to the hospital or something, what happened? Because they can't be everywhere at every time. You're responsible for you and your family's safety. Today's kind of a weird day and, and Hamas-type stuff. I mean, I don't know what this what it means, but apparently today's a higher threat day that people have their guard up. And, and of course, all the stuff going on in Israel makes it that way. So I'm not worried that I'm going to get killed today. But if if you think that there's going to be a cop that's going to stop a bullet in a split second that someone throws at you for no reason, it's, it's one thing to get in a fight and be drunk at a bar and you, and you might go out in the parking lot and something bad happens. But if someone just wants to kill you with you not knowing it's coming, and that's pretty easy targets. But Philip, just in the most diplomatic way imaginable, said, I'm packing today. Uh, <laughs> just in case you're asking, you want to jump in my yeah, yeah, quick. I mean, Philip's point is well made. The old saying in law enforcement is that, you know, the law enforcement arrives in minutes when seconds is what counts. And they do such a good job, such a tough job, but they can't be everywhere. But, you know, if we go back to even the biblical examples, what did Nehemiah say when he was rebuilding the walls, right? You put a plow in one hand and you put your sword in the other hand. 
you work while you're able to defend yourself. How many examples do we need where if you waited for law enforcement to show up, they're going to be too late after the fact. So I think it's now is the time for the, for us to realize arming yourself and being not just armed, but proficient, being prepared to pull that trigger is now is an important time. Council 30 seconds. There are two realities I always come back to. Number one, why is it that in the United States, the strictest areas on gun laws, Chicago, for example, are the most dangerous places. And number two, we create gun laws to mainly govern our law abiding citizens. Criminals don't care about the gun laws. They're going to break the law. So again, Mike, what Mike Phillips said is spot on back in a few with some football picks. Well, we got about three and a half minutes. We have a full house. We have Senator Rick and Bob representative Lowe and Jordan. I don't know who's leading this me, thing. Me. Yeah. I think, Philip, I think gunslinger, I think gunslinger may be leading this thing. Okay. You ready? Texas A&M at Tennessee, Tennessee. Okay. Tennessee. I, I got to pick up some wins. Giga Maggie. Okay. A&M. Mike Descents. Um, Kansas at Oklahoma State. <laughs> Go, Mike. No. He, he's going to take Kansas. <laughs> it's got to be the Oklahoma State. So no rock, Jayhawk, for you? Nope. Uh, Jake? Uh, those poor Kansas people have messed Mike up so many times. Uh, it's going the Cowboys. Okay. Oklahoma. Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, Oregon at Washington. Both teams in the top ten. Mike? Huskies. Okay. Oregon. Oregon. Okay. I uh, got some disagreement here. Um, Auburn at LSU. The real Death Valley. Jake? LSU gets right. Is it a nighttime game? I think it is. I think it is. The drunk Cajuns will be a home field advantage. Right. Yeah, it's the Cajun Navy. I got to go with LSU. Okay. Um, Miami at North Carolina. Philip. Oh, North Carolina. Okay. Mm. <laughs> Miami. That coach is fighting for his life. <laughs> Miami. All you had to yeah. do was take a knee, dude. Yeah, take a uh, knee. Yeah. Coach is fighting for his life, but he loses. Okay. Chapel Hill. Missouri at Kentucky. Gamecock fans will be interested in this one. Philip. Kentucky. 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 Okay. Um, Florida. Clemson's off this weekend. Um, the Gators at the Gamecocks. Mike. Okay. Betting with his heart. Yeah, it's a it's a home game for the Gamecocks. It's a three thirty. I think uh the, the Gamecock Nation has not abandoned ship completely yet, so they're gonna win this one. Of course the Gamecocks. Come on. Okay. How big a game? We got about about a minute or a minute and a half, say. How big a game? Philip, I'll start with you. Um, how big a game is this in the Shane Beamer tenure as head coach at South Carolina? Well, typically, if we beat Florida, they lose their coach the next year, right? So <laughs> it's an important game. Uh, we needed to have beat North Carolina, right? I mean, that set our season up. That, and that hurt it when it didn't. But this is the turning point. We'll never get to 500 if we don't win this one. How big a game is this for Beamer, Mike? I think it sets the, the trajectory for the rest of the season, mentally for the team. Yeah, this is this is it. Just feels like kind of a line in the sand that um, he he needs to win this one. This is one at home. Um, you're only a two and a half point favorite. This ain't the Gators of Urban Meyer and Steve Spurrier. I mean, this team has struggled a lot over the last really since Urban Meyer left. I mean, they they've struggled trying to trying to find their way. If 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 Shane doesn't win this one, if the Gamecocks don't win this one, it's hard to find many more wins on that schedule. <laughs> I mean, it really and truly is four at home in the season. You got Jacksonville State, but you also got Kentucky, Clemson, Missouri, 
Texas A&M. Kentucky and Missouri yeah, are good, I mean, by the you, way. You, yeah. you, you better win Saturday or you're setting yourself up for failure. Thanks to the three of them. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few. 843-661937. Why is that not appropriate? Why is Bob Dylan not appropriate today? We're talking about Judeo-Christian values. Bob Dylan's been both a Jew and a Christian <laughs> and back, right? <laughs> I think that's true. Ed Bradley interviewed him, and Ed Bradley said, So, Bob, are you Jewish or Christian? You know what his answer was? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, seriously, uh, Robert Zimmerman was Jewish. Bob Dylan became a Christian. And then he didn't, you know, let's, let's waffle a bit here. And he became a Jew. I think he's been back and forth twice. Um, so he would be what we call in politics a flip-flopper. <laughs> well, so I saw you kind of singing along to that song. That's a great know. song, man. Oh, I mean, it, it was kind of a hit. I'll give well, you I mean, that. But, but you would agree. Okay, let me ask you this. And here's where I'd love to get your opinion here. Mm. Is Like a Rolling Stone an anthem? Ooh. Mm. Oh. Mm. Don't, don't make me Rip say it. hates to admit things. <laughs> don't he make hates me to say admit, it. But he knows. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that Like a Rolling Stone is a an anthem, probably historically. See, I, but I still would not. I mean, historically, maybe, but I wouldn't put it even close to the anthem. And it's, it's hard for me to even admit, but I do that. You know, Born to Run is a huge anthem. Is Blowing in the Wind an anthem? <sighs> Again, historically, I think they are. But but to me, his music is knocking on heaven's door an, an anthem. Yeah, yes. Okay, but. So, so Dylan has an anthem. He has, and I don't know how I'm, how I'm trying to explain this, but historically, yes. But to me, there, there's another ingredient to anthem that his songs don't have. I know, I know what you're going to say. Yeah, I mean, mainstream appeal. Well, it's it's the mainstream appeal, and it's it's the musical anthem. I mean, his uh, he's obviously about the lyrics and the words, and some people find them interesting, whatever. But, you know, it's not a Born to Run or a Free Bird or some of these other songs, Hotel California, Stairway to Heaven that we consider anthems. Fair enough. Just because it doesn't have that musical ing- uh, ingredient. I can't to me. disagree with to that. Me. I, mean, I can't disagree with that. I mean, you're right. Stairway to Heaven, Born to Run, Hotel California, um, Let It Be. I mean, yeah, yeah those would be, no, no doubt about it. They put all the checks in the boxes. Right. With Dylan, you're like, I don't know if a check's in this box yeah, or I not. I mean, because the song, to, to me, it just, I mean, I don't think he's a good singer. And his instrumentation. I don't think he thinks he's a good singer. His, his, his <laughs> instrumentation is very basic, and, and some and that's appealing to, to some. I get it, but it's not. You know, doesn't seem very complex. I mean, I, I couldn't do it. But, so, do you, know. you believe some of the intrigue or mystique with Dylan? And Josh, I want you to jump in. Um, do you believe some of the intrigue and mystique with Dylan is people like saying, "I'm a Bob Dylan fan." You, you feel a little bit out of the out of the norm. You feel a little bit okay. I, I want to be rebellious and I want to be counterculturalist. <laughs> I like Dylan. Yeah. Do you believe that's that's some people's way of saying, I want to be different, so I'm pulling, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Bob Dylan fan? And I think that's probably, yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Okay. Yeah. You, you want to be accepted in certain circles. Well, yeah, and, and you want to relate to the to what he stood for, especially when he was writing those songs. What the, do you the, think the, Dylan stood for? Well, he was counterculture. You're right. I mean, that, that, that's, that's the end of it. I mean, that's what he was. He, he wrote about counterculturalism. He was a counterculturalist. Um, I think you would agree with me here. Um, he gave two of the best answers I've ever heard given in a live interview when Ed Bradley asked him that the question was about eight minutes long <laughs> and it included lyrics that spoke to a generation and moved the American consciousness and soul. I mean, the, and, and you could tell Ed Bradley had prepared forever to have a chance because Dylan not giving me the interviews 
And when he does, he's normally about half high. But um, but, half? but yeah. <laughs> but anyway, Ed Bradley took about eight minutes to ask a question about counterculturalism and the consciousness of society and the anti-war movement and Woodstock and all these other things. And then he said, "But Bob, you understand that people have have accepted your lyrics as a kind of an anthem to a generation." And Dylan said, "Ain't that something?" <laughs> and that was it. And that was it. And and, and Ed Bradley, a, a very accomplished journalist, starts scrambling like, "Oh my God, he's as weird as they said he was." And then they ask, he talks about jumping his fence at his home in Woodstock, and and Ed Bradley says, "So people would jump your fence and talk about." God and, and, and organic farming. And what, what do you know about organic farming? Nothing, not a thing, (laughs) but, but they jumped my fence and wanted to talk about God and organic farming and, (laughs) and knowing Dylan, he probably talked to him about God and, uh, and, and organic farming. Josh, what do you make of Dylan? Who's that? (laughs) (laughs) Right. He's waiting to give that answer. You just heard it. Seriously. what, What do you make of Dylan? I don't know enough about him. Okay. I mean, uh, you're talking about his counterculturalism, and I, I don't know what you're talking about, to be honest. And maybe he was countercultural in the, you know, 1920s or whenever he started. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Funny. <laughs> but it seems like the countercultural stuff of the 1960s is now just mainstream. That, that, so that, I don't know. Well, if that's, yeah, that's but but you, would, you would agree a lot of the counterculturalists are now running companies. And they, they have true. a certain amount of the country's wealth. I mean, they're they're in prominent positions. That's in that's been kind of a um, it's been a I don't know, Rev, evolution, transition, whatever. It's been a stage. You know, you go from here to there, and, and the counterculturalists. Next thing you know, they grow up, and they're not quite as counterculturalists. I mean, there's still some. There's a fire burning inside. They don't want to go along and get along, but they know they've got a. You know, there's this world out there they got to be a part of and be employed and and make money and pay bills and all these other. Um, sorts of things, um, but but no, I think Dylan was a a a a, a representation of um, the '60s and, and counterculturalism and a going against. Now, now it was kind of an anti-war, anti-Vietnam um, sort of kind of thing. Woodstock would have been was a bunch he? Of, we didn't start the fire. Was he who sung that? It was Billy no. Joel. No. Oh, that would have been a hundred years later. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but but having heard the song you just heard. Like a Rolling Stone. I don't know. That might have been the first time you heard that. I mean, what do you think of him as an artist, as a music artist in a song? He's got a funny voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how do you feel? He does. He does have a, a, a certain uniqueness to his sound. No per- question. Perfect answer, by the way, Josh. Thank you. But but here's where Rev, here's where his struggle is. It's not a struggle. Here's where his, I don't get it. If you ask some of Rev's music heroes who they admire and respect. Right. They may say a lot of different people at a lot of different times, but the only one that nearly everyone that Rev holds in high regard will refer to is Bob Dylan. And that's where I think Rev goes, I don't get that, yeah, man. True. McCartney said it. Lennon said it. Um, you know, uh, Jagger said it. Keith Richards said it. Springsteen said it. All the uh, Joe Walsh and Don Henley and Glenn Fry, they all said that they kind of, they revered Dylan. They looked up yeah. to Dylan in a, in a certain weird, almost messianic, um, kind of way. Let's go to the phone. I'm sorry. didn't mean to, to stay in the Bob Dylan lane as far as we did, <laughs> but, but it is kind of an interesting, he's, a, he's an interesting dude today because he's been a Jew and a Christian and a Jew and a Christian. And, and I understand that, 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 you know, those who believe in eternal salvation, they're like, you can't do that. Well, he's Dylan. I'll just leave it there. Let's go to the phone. Uh, David in the PD. Hello, David. 
Hey man, Robert Zimmerman, Bob Dylan, uh, Jew Christian to the secular uninformed, they'll be like, what? Or cool. Uh, hey, Rolling Stone magazine, he's a better vocalist than Elvis Presley. Can you imagine that? But that's the media. Uh, hey, want to talk about uh, the Phillies had their old school uniforms on last night. Ken, you can remember these things like Mike Schmidt and Lazinski and Steve Carlton. Remember them well. Back in the day. Yeah, remember them well. No. No, very well. And see, here's a good question. I know when you're off for like five days, can you lose your momentum? I'm sure of that, but can you lose your swagger? That's my question about that game last night. Can you lose your swagger? And number two is that I know Charlie Morton, he, he wasn't available for this thing, but can somebody lose their swagger? And I want just – I'm just getting that. That's an inner spirit that you have. Can you lose your swagger? And you brought up a good point today. You you brought up uh, Yasser Arafat. Now, you remember the 1972 Munich Olympics. That's when we all found out about the good old PLO. Uh, and now that we got this whole thing going on today, so it didn't start uh, yesterday or, or last Saturday, but this thing's been going on for a long time, in fact, to the beginning of history. Uh, and I'm thinking about um, uh, uh, when does this country learn from their mistakes? Back in 73, we had that Yom Kippur War, and then everybody says we got to become energy independent, energy independent. We sort of got that with Donald Trump. I mean, I hate to use that term, but, you know, that's something that we've always needed to do so we don't have to rely on these people. And I'll leave you at this, man. I mean, you always have to think about who profits off of hate, because this is hate. Who profits off confusion? And I was thinking we brought up the Munich Olympics. That was 72. This other, uh, Yom Kippur, 73. Who's been around that whole time in politics? Our president. And that's who we are looking at for answers. Uh, y'all have a good weekend. Thank you, David. You know, and I, and I try to get my arms around this. I, I actually made some notes to myself yesterday. I do it on my phone. Then I transcribe them in a, in written word. Um, and nobody can read my writing, but me, and that's fine. But, um, I mean, I was thinking about Ukraine and Russia. How many of you believe, Josh, I want you to jump in because I'm very interested in your opinion here. How many of you believe Josh is my subject at hand, but how many of us, let me include myself. How many of us believe that Russians want every Ukrainian dead or would rather Ukrainians be subservient to the Russian form of government? I mean, you know, answer A is the Russians led by Vladimir Putin want every Ukrainian alive in the world today to be dead, to to, to, to not exist tomorrow. Or do you believe that the Russian government led by Vladimir Putin wants Ukraine to be a part of Russia and the Ukrainians basically obligate or commit to follow Russian dictates and commands and edicts and, and gun governance. I don't believe that the Russians want to ethnically cleanse the Ukrainians. Th- there's no reason to believe that. Is that fair? I've never I mean, heard there's that no, proclaimed. Sure. Right. I mean, you've never heard any Russian leader saying, you know, let's kill every Ukrainian. But, but, but isn't that different? I mean, is that, I, under, I mean, sure there's hate there and there's evil there. I mean, I'm not defending anything Putin does. And I think he is a, a thug dictator to the extreme. But isn't that what makes the situation with Hamas and Israel a little bit different? There are people in this world that, that pledge a loyalty and, a, and an association with Hamas. 
And Hamas has publicly said, we don't want Jews to live. I mean, not only do we want to abolish the Jewish state, we want every Jew to be dead. And, and I'm just saying, as a Judeo-Christian, and I'm talking about somebody, I mean, I'm a Christian, but I ascribe to the Judeo-Christian ethic, the value system that I think has enlightened the world, has instilled human dignity and, and you know, compassion and humanity. And, I mean, I think our charitable spirit comes from somewhere within. I think the Judeo-Christian value system or ethic has compelled human beings to be kind and decent and helpful to other human beings. Um, it, it, I'm not saying it's easy for me to watch what's happening in Ukraine and Russia because it's not. I mean, it's not. But the Judeo-Christian value system or, 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 or ethic that I believe in doesn't let me look past what's happening um, in, in Israel because I believe this. If Israel laid their guns down today, there wouldn't be a Jew alive in six months. I mean, if, if, if Israel said, okay, let's coexist, you lay your gun down, I'll lay mine down, there wouldn't be a Jew living in this world or in that part of the world probably in, le- in 60 days. I mean, they would hunt them down like dogs and they would kill them. They would slaughter because they've said, take people at their word sometimes. I mean, I understand academic exercises, flight simulators. We talk a lot about that. Sometimes just listen to what somebody says. And they'll tell you what they believe. Take a break. Back in a few. Hey, remember the scene in Stripes when uh, Bill Murray said that he was willing to lead this platoon? <laughs> Sergeant Hulka. Remember the scene? Uh, Sergeant Hulka. And they're all sitting around telling stories. And uh, Bill Murray's character says, you know, I'm volunteering my, uh, my, 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 myself for service. I'm, I'm willing to lead this platoon. Um, I mean, just obviously there's a sarcastic arrogance there that the movie depicts. I believe that Josh is struggling with where he stands on this most complicated issue. And I think he's taken in everything we've discussed. And he's interjected a lot this week about what he believes and what he stands for and what he thinks should happen. But I don't sense any clarity, Josh. I don't sense any, any resolve. I don't think you have, I mean, I think you've tried to sort through it and try to better understand what our objectives should be, what our end game, uh, what, wh- where, where we should try to lead, because we're going to be a big part of this. I mean, it doesn't matter what I think. I mean, I, I'm a non-interventionist, America First Republican. I, I, I've leveled with our listeners. That conflicts today with my adherence to a biblical worldview, right? I mean, I'm a non-interventionist, America First Republican. Loudly and proudly, I stand. But I also have a, uh, you know, a biblical worldview based on my Judeo-Christian ethic. That they kind of, um, they don't naturally correspond here. One pulls one way, and the other pulls another way. And if you're worth your salt, you, you seriously consider those forces, and you try to better understand. Okay, uh, I can't be both. I mean, I'm trying to be, but I can't. I mean, I've got to say, okay, America, you must do X, or America, you can't do anything. Do what you've always done. Um, we give $3.8 billion a year. That's a line item on our fence budget. You know, Israel's got a problem. You know, that, that's their deal. Jewish state, middle of the Middle East. It's going to be a problem until the end of time. Fair enough. But, 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 but can that ethic, that caring for human beings, that standing against evil and, and, and hate, can we balance 
those very powerful energies in, in both considerations. And, and Josh, I feel that you have, I mean, as I have, and as Rev has, we've all struggled in, um, cause I think all three of us are a little bit conflicted here. I mean, I know I am, I can't speak for Rev and, and Josh, but, um, but I don't think anybody, I mean, it's my job to talk more. Okay. I mean, I, you know, you hear from me more, <laughs> but, but you know, these guys hear what I say and, and I got to believe that in the conscious or subconscious, they say, don't agree with that. I kind of agree with that. I think he's crazy there, but I do agree here. Um, I mean, it's not an interview. I don't interview Ray for four hours a day. I don't interview Josh for four hours a day. But, but Josh, where have you? I mean, it's it's not. We got thirty more minutes of this this um this radio broadcast for the week. Have you? Do you have with more clarity where you stand as a twenty six year old American youth? Slightly. Uh, I don't think you're going to like it, but uh, but. A little bit more clarity. I think that, um, you know, going into this, like I, I've admitted, I don't, I don't know. There, there's a lot of nuance here, and I'm just not aware of it all. But um, in the past couple of days, I've, I've noticed there's a lot of uh, one-sidedness to this debate from my point of view, and I agree because I'm, I'm neutral on this. I'm, I'm an America firster, and, and to me. Going into this, I'm like, I don't really see the difference between us not wanting to send tons of money to Ukraine versus us not wanting to send a bunch of money to Israel. Those two things seem on par to me. And I don't think uh, you're, you're being hypocritical because you said you're an America firster, but you support Israel more than Ukraine. But that's due to your biblical worldview and your interpretation of Scripture. That's perfectly fine with me. I, I, my politics is informed by my faith first and foremost. That's not a contradiction. That's not a bad thing in my point of view. I just happen to take a different view of Scripture. And to me, um, I do think that there, there is, there's lobbyists in our country, and there is an Israeli lobby, and I think they have a lot of influence on our nation's politics, good or bad. They are an ally of ours. I don't know what benefit they provide, but that's just because I haven't looked into it. So maybe it is the right thing for us to enforce, but it, to to help them. But I don't think that you know, like a ground invasion is probably the best thing. And that's all I. That's Rip, all I can Rip, say. You, you care to s- summarize the way you feel? <laughs> And think today? Yeah, and I'll, I'll make a, a couple of observations. And, and since you're comparing somewhat the two, you're comparing Ukraine and uh, and Israel, um, the fact that we've seen so many more videos, I mean, the, the bad and the ugly and the evil um, from Israel, and I still really haven't seen a lot from Ukraine. I mean, there's, you've seen some bombed-out buildings and stuff, but the coverage has been totally different. And it's, I'm just curious about that as to why this we're seeing and, and hearing and feeling this so much more. But as it relates to the conflict itself, um, I would believe that Israel has the absolute right and basically the uh, the duty to neutralize the threat. Now, we've talked a lot about in the context of revenge uh, this week, you know, do you, and, and certainly the, the images that we've seen have been terribly horrific and, and the, the instinct to... to exact some revenge is absolutely a, a an honest instinct i think but at this point you know they have to neutralize the threat and i would be behind them now i've never advocated or would say that we need to have boots on the ground but we obviously have have to support them and they have to neutralize this where does our support end the 3.8 billion dollars and i think josh makes an interesting point 
and and uh, to me, the most interesting point Rev made was, why are we seeing so many visuals out of Israel and we see so little out of out of Ukraine? Um, who's behind that? Right. <laughs> well, Which I mean, it probably drives some of the skepticism sure about does. the money we're sure sending to, to Ukraine. Yeah, you're asking me for money and nobody knows what's happening over right. there, man. Are you winning, losing? You right. know, what's, what's are, the are goal you making here? progress? Yeah, what's the end game? <laughs> And, and, and um, nobody's described that very, very, you know, consistently to say, you know, other than, you know, we have to stop Putin. Okay, mm-hmm. well, whatever. Yeah. And but but we, now, but I know, but but as I relate it to Israel, I mean, we know that they have been attacked and there is a threat to their existence and, in a way. But, but, but Josh makes an interesting point. The, the Israeli lobby, unbelievably effective, unbelievably well-funded. Very good at what they do. I mean, you would expect the Israeli lobby to drive a narrative. I mean, you would expect that. I mean, to be right. honest, Josh, you would agree to this. If they're not, they're not doing their job. Exactly. They're not earning their keep. I mean, if they're there in Washington to lobby on behalf of whatever aid Israel asks for, and they're not getting it, that they're not advancing an agenda, why have an Israeli lobby? I mean, I'm not, I'm not offended. I mean, I wish it weren't the case. But, but I'm not offended um, by, by the Israeli lobby. In fact, I look at the Israeli lobbyists kind of, kind of like they're doing the bid for Israel. I mean, pharmaceuticals have lobbyists. Insurance companies have lobbyists. Mm-hmm. The military-industrial complex we know has. Well, I find the number a little interesting because you've said $3.8 billion is that's, our that's, aid I mean, to, I, to Israel. That's the line item. Now, now once again, we, Israel would argue that there is a reciprocal effect of the money we invest. Here's what I think happens, and I think Eben Brown kind of went down that road a little bit, and I tweeted with Eben, private message with Eben a lot yesterday, and, and obviously he has a, a passion about this issue. His grandparents hid under a table, you know, from Nazi Germany. Um, but but, but Eben, Eben was talking a little bit about, and, and, and I, I'm, I'm reading between the lines here, and I'll probably get in trouble, but I'm not, you know, I'm not some expert. I'm not a guy that you need to trust on being 100% accurate about this. Eben said something about reciprocating effects and R&D. And I've always believed, and I've read some of this in, in certain places. How trustworthy is it? I don't know. But, but we come up with the latest, greatest cutting-edge technology, but we've never applied it in real time in the field. We provide Israel with this latest, greatest surveillance or, or, or you know, what, whatever, automated technology, whatever it is, whatever we come up with. I mean, here's a way to best detect, you know, um, missiles or planes or a threat. And, and we give it Israel, and they're competent and smart and savvy enough and motivated enough to apply it in real time. In other words, our military defense empire, the, the complex that Eisenhower warned us about, and I'm no more trusting of them than I was before, you know, um, Hamas, invaded Israel. I know what they're up to. I mean, they're, they're as clear as a bail, money. I mean, you know, we want a larger part of the federal budget. But but I, I believe that American, the American military does a lot of research and development. Out of that comes a new product. That's what you and I would refer to, it, new technology. And and they, they they let Israel use it because, I mean, that, that's field tested, right? I mean, it's in the middle of a, of a part of the world where the people that surround them pretty much hate them in general. Uh, the majority of Arabs, or excuse me, the majority of Muslims probably don't care much for for Jews or Israeli uh, Israelis. And and you know what is that value? What is the benefit of America if we come up with the latest greatest technology? We send it to Israel. They send it back saying, "Yeah, it works. It works exactly as you 
guy said. I mean, isn't that kind of a reciprocating effect? I mean, don't we gain value? Aren't we safer by knowing that what we created, the technological advancements we made, work when applied under pressure? I don't know that to be true, but but I suspect we've done a lot more of that than either of the three of us will ever know. Take a break. Back in a few. Yeah, if you ask Steve Perry of Journey who his musical influences were as a kid, oh, no. he'd say Bob Dylan. No. Probably. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Anthony in North Carolina. Good morning. You're on. Hey, what's going on, fellas? Hey, Anthony. Uh, I, I tell you, man, when you pull on somebody's emotions, man, people will do anything. I'll just sit here thinking about, you mean to tell me that um, some poor, dirt poor, ignorant people, I say ignorant people, though, without technology or weapons, can penetrate the U.S. and pull off 9 11, and they can penetrate Israel, and you can't shoot a missile in Israel, but you can fly in off of a parachute. I mean, the whole thing to me, if you do certain stuff to draw on the emotions of the people, they'll give you the backing to do whatever without investigating. I mean, it don't make sense. Basically, it's places that don't have a media where they can't report the other story or the true story that these kind of things happen with. But maybe some poor, ignorant people from Afghanistan and Hamas penetrated the whole U.S. Department and Israel. It just doesn't make sense to me. But you had a caller that was talking about uh, dehumanizing people. And I'm looking at TV since I, I've been sick. I ain't, I ain't get a shot, but I feel a whole lot better now. But um, all the media, first of all, the media is controlled by the Jewish community. That's not a knock on them. That's, you know, it, it's the fact. But everything on TV is one-sided showing it's basically getting everybody riled up to do, to kill. And we are a Christian country. That just don't make sense to me. But I was doing some, some research, and I noticed that every European country kicked them, the so-called Jews out until 1948 when they landed here. Now, 10%, 10% of, of any race ain't, it ain't Sam, Henry, Isaac, and Tom. That's 10% of all races. 9% of, of everybody else is good people. 9% of the Jews are good people, though, but they're not standing up to the bad 10% of their race. Now, what I've learned is all European countries kicked them out because the African countries, they couldn't go there saying that they are the Jews because of the history that African people already know. So that's why all European countries kicked them out, Russia, Germany, all of them, because if you're a Christian country, and I can come in and say that I'm the Jew, and your religion says that you're supposed to serve me or do what I say, whatever, uh, do you even see how they even, even sound? So other countries kicked them out except for America. In America... If you think about it, we are Christians that are killers for the Jewish people. The Jewish people ain't really killers. I mean, if you think about 9-11, we took out anybody that threatened Israel during 9-11. Yes, uh, we went to Afghanistan, whatever, because the whole thing, whatever. But if you do your homework on 9-11, you know that the same thing happened with 9-11, with Pearl Harbor, with all them, it was like we would t- turn a blind eye Oh, they killed Americans. Oh, they killed all the Americans. We got to do something. Pearl Harbor and the military industrial complex just so happened to have a big bomb that they ain't had, had use for it yet. So at the Pearl Harbor, we used a big bomb. 9-11 come. We didn't see it coming. Every system in America failed from the FAA to the military to the Air Force, but nobody got fired. 
And all the Americans was, oh, my goodness, they hurt the Americans. We got to do whatever, whatever. We had new ammunition from the uh, military industrial complex, so we did shock and awe. What we are doing now, instead of us fighting wars here and the military complex making money off of it, they're doing it in other countries. We supporting Ukraine war. Our taxpayers paying the military industrial complex to supply weapons over there. Now, the same thing with Israel. It keeps going on and on, and uh, American people just, we don't wake up to basically what's going on. Me, myself, I'm a 5 senator. 85% of Americans are deaf, dumb, and blind followers. 10% of Americans know that, and they take advantage of them. 5%, me, Breeze, and some more callers, we try to we try to educate the 85% to both sides or the truth. Thank you, Anthony. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. He had a lot to say. Anthony always has a lot to say. And uh, once again, um, disagreeable opinions are welcome here. Dissent is embraced here. Um, I, I, I will say this. You don't have to twist my arm real hard to get me to buy into conspiracy theory. I mean, Rev's been sitting beside me for over 11 years. I mean, I am a cynic, a contrarian. Uh, I mean, really and truly. I mean, I'll go down that rabbit hole in a skinny minute because I buy into some of what Anthony said. I don't believe powerful people tell the truth. I mean, I just don't. I think speaking truth to power is something that we woefully lack in American discourse today. I do believe that the majority of Seinfeld watchers blindly and loyally follow misrepresentations of what the truth is and the facts on on the ground are, but but everything can't be a conspiracy. I mean, I'll agree that there's a reason to consider every conspiracy theory that comes down the pike, but every facet of life, every day you wake up from that moment to the moment you go to bed is not a conspiracy. And, and I think I think conspiracy theorist, this is a crazy way to say it. I think we lose credibility. <laughs> When, when we believe everything is a conspiracy and there's nothing out there that appears uh, the way it appears, there was an infant child in a plastic bag with a hundred bullet holes and a, and a, and a, you know, a certain degree of dismemberment. That's not a conspiracy theory. There, there, were, there were innocent Jewish children beheaded by Hamas. That's not a conspiracy theory. That's the truth. If you listen to what people say, they'll tell you who they are. And Hamas and Hezbollah and Al-Qaeda and ISIS have said that those who ascribe to a Judeo-Christian ethic are infidels. And there's a certain interpretation of their belief that they believe they're martyrs, that they believe. I mean, how do you rationalize with that, guys? I mean, I'll ask anybody out there. Help me understand this. Let's get psychological uh, for a second. I mean, this does get psychobabblish. But, but let's, let me, these people tell you who they are. I don't know what percentage of Muslims ascribe to that. I mean, I, you know, you got Sharia law and you got certain sects within that and you got a, an interpretation of scripture and you got Allah Akbar. I mean, I, I, I'm not a Muslim. I, I, you know, I have enough trouble understanding and deciphering what I'm led to believe and what I'm supposed to react and respond based on my ethic and, and value system. But, but there's a certain percentage of the Muslim faith that have told you loud and clear who they are and what their desires are. And that is to rid the world of those of us who ascribe to a Judeo-Christian ethic and value system. 
What percentage of Muslims? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But but to, to, to suggest that's not real, to suggest that the, the media is trying to mislead people into believing that a certain percentage of Hamas is 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 dangerous and a certain percentage is not, and Hezbollah and, and, and Al-Qaeda and ISIS and some of these other terrorist cells. I mean, as I said before, some people will tell you who they are. And these terrorist organizations motivated by some interpretation of Islam have convinced themselves that they're doing the world a favor and they'll be rewarded by God if they kill Jews and Christians. That's emphatically true. That's not a report from the United Nations or NATO. That's from the mouth of fanatical Islamists. Take a break. Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. They sponsor this, and this hadn't been nonsense this week. I mean, it usually is. This has been <laughs> a serious week of radio. We seriously considered and contemplated and a very important issue in our geopolitical world. And I'm proud of what we've done. I'm more proud and, uh, and, and thankful of what you've done out there in our listening audience. But we're going to end with a little fun. You ready? Rev's Braves suck. <laughs> we'll find out whether our Gamecocks <laughs> suck or not uh, tomorrow when they play the Florida Gators. We gave some uh, the last couple of trivia questions a little bit more difficult than than normal. So we sizzled your brain all week trying to better understand, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We're going to give you a layup as a trivia question. You ready? Gamecocks and Gators play tomorrow at 3.30 on the SEC Network. Who is the all-time winningest coach at South Carolina and Florida? SpongeBob SquarePants is one dude. I'll just leave it there. Who's the all-time winningest coach at South Carolina and the University of Florida Gators? Is somebody there? Hi, you're on the air. You know the answer? Oh, no, I don't. I just, I, uh, yeah, 843-661-0937 is our number. Do we have an answer? Hi, you're on. You know the answer? I believe that'd be Steve Spurrier. Yep, HBC, the head ball coach. Spurrier won 77 games at South Carolina, 122 games at the University of Florida. Who is this? Where are you calling from? Uh, this is Rick, and I'm in Lake City. Okay, Rick, sit tight. We'll get you back to um, the anti-Semite Josh. No, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> I'm kidding. He knows I'm joking around Woo. with him. Yeah, <laughs> just sit tight, and we'll get you back to Josh. Josh, to get all your, your information. Thanks to Pepsi Florence. Uh, they support this. And as I said, not a week of nonsense, but rather serious political and um and and intellectual discourse. Mm-hmm. And I'm honored to have been a part a part of that. But yes, Steve Spurrier won 77 games at the University of South Carolina, 122 at uh, the University of Florida, a national championship at one, uh, not the other, um, nearly <laughs> won an SEC championship nearly. back in the day. But there was a dude named Cam, Cam Newton. Newton. Yeah, that um <sighs> yeah that was um. Not that was larger than life, literally and figuratively, and was quite the handful for the uh, for the Gamecocks, but probably the most successful. Ain't no, probably, obviously, the most successful run Gamecock football has ever had was uh, with Spurrier. Did I read where he'll be at the game uh, at Jacksonville State? Jacksonville State. Yep. They're honoring that team, that series of teams that they call the golden era yep. of Gamecock football. Um, one of the one of the great personalities in college football. I mean, we talk about you know the game and person. He's just a great, great. A smart ass without question, but but a really unique dude. Enjoy your week. We'll talk Monday.